and welcome to the Nightcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 116th episode of the Nightcast titled Shadow of a Doubt Part 2, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Davos 2, in which Stannis and Davos have a very casual conversation. Nothing major going on here, just bros being bros. It's a dude's rock kind of podcast. You know, I just feel like this episode and this part of the chapter is basically the podcasts of Davos episodes. You just got two guys just talking the entire time. Oh, you're so forth. right. I hadn't thought of that at all. You could, this is just this is just the Stannis Davos podcast. Who would listen to the Stannis Davos podcast? That's right, no one. Because <laughs> who would listen? Because who would listen to it? But Stannis and Davos, and they're already on it. Exactly. Uh, it's so much fun. So I'm very excited to do this episode. I think this one is going to be one of our best, if not the best episode, because we've got. 35 pages of stuff to cover in about uh, about eight or nine paragraphs or so to speak from the Clash of Kings Davos 2. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, who adds troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards to his title, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master Ships and Word of the Waves, who also adds Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones to his title, Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Namas, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli. Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dance with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Thedes, and Gentle M's, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldiver, the waiter for Tewell, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princesses Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Shomal the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Faced Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked, In the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, The Cadaver King of Whore of Heron Hall, Olaf, Proponent of the Established, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils, wherein every vote Excuse me. I said I've messed this up the last time, and he sent us a message correcting this. Where every count votes. Get it? It's a joke. It's really good. Sir Tim, the knight who's got it by voices. Lord Nick, 
Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, and our newest slash oldest member of the Small Council, everyone welcome back Lord Jean, the splendid Master of Coin, Warden of Tampa Bay, whose leave of absence just prior to the 2020 audit was not regarded as suspicious by anyone, especially <laughs> after the treasure turned up a little light in terms of the coin load. Interesting. What did, we have our own conspiracy theories and plots going on now, but thank you so much, <laughs> as always, to our Small Council, and welcome back to Jean. We love you, buddy. Absolutely, Gene. It's great to have you back. Really appreciate your support. Our spoiling, as we say in all episodes, will potentially talk about all published books. That is the five novels, three ducking novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsmanner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Carl Z, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Hey guys, I was thinking after the first Forsaken episode and had a question, should you select it? Aaron has, quote, two mighty pillars on which he built his life after his drowning. You have spent a fair amount of time discussing the second, insofar as his reliance on the drowned god is mostly hearing his own thoughts repeated back to him as godly wisdom. I haven't heard as much discussion about the first pillar, Balon. What reason would Aaron have to establish Balon as not only his role model and eventual king, but a pillar for his entire worldview? The Balin we know from the books couldn't have been helpful in dealing with Aaron's trauma from the abuse he suffered. Is he merely useful as an exemplar of the old way, or is there another reason for Aaron to make his brother such an all-important figure in his life? And that's a great question. Thank you so much, Carl. What do you think about that, Jeff? Why does Aaron have this kind of hero worship attitude towards Balon? I think it really comes down to who Aaron Dampere was before he was drowned after the Battle of Fair Isle, in that he seemed very much the kind of the typical ironborn reaver type right he was the guy that balin his older brother had threatened to execute for wanting to call his uh, his ship like something based off of his cock so that's uh, that's that seems very much in in keeping with the kind of ironborn reaving traditions that are very prominent among the iron islanders and which have proved continuously popular and of course hijacked by Euron Greyjoy at the uh, at the king's mood itself so i think that there's there's a big part of it there that balin greyjoy is the guy who just kind of represent the kind of those ironborn ideals. I also think there's a, there's something else too, in that we see in um, we we see we learn early on that Balin Greyjoy actually exiled Euron Crozai from the Iron Islands, and I do wonder whether it's a part of why Aaron is very fond of his brother because no one else did anything against Euron Greyjoy, and even though exiling Euron for raping potentially raping Victarion's wife was seemingly a bit of a um a light punishment when it comes to the actual crime that may have been committed by Euron Greyjoy and in fact I do think it was most likely rape in in Euron's case since that is one of his modus operandi knowing him yeah yeah it really feels like that's part of his part of who he is I think that when you think about it that way in terms of like one guy just one guy in all of human history has stood up to Euron Crozai and it was my big brother Balin Greyjoy and I think that is a big part of why Euron is so reliant on Balin being his pillar I don't think that's the full extent of it, though, and I'll turn it over to you to talk more about that. I think you make great points. I think that definitely enhanced Balin's role as a protector for Aaron. On the other hand, though, Euron was only exiled, what, two years before the story starts, and it seems right. like Dampere has been building this kind of hero worship on Balin for a while. He does have a very revealing line that I think comes closest to answering the question. He says, better to be scorned by Balin the Bold than beloved of Euron Crow's Eye. And I think that's a lot of Aaron's just like problems wrapped up in a single sentence. Like, first of all, he, he's, he's filtered Euron molesting him as being beloved of him. Like, that's the only way he can kind of talk about it, even in his own head. That's the only way he can really process it. And for him, he, he feels more love from Balin's scorn. Like, that's just kind hmm. of how 
messed up and sad and emotionless the Greyjoy family is right now and the old way Ironborn as a whole that Aaron thinks I was weak, I was lesser, and that's what because I was dirty because of what Euron did to me. So it's good that Balin scorned me. That's that proves that Balin is a good person because you know I'm awful. So if Balin hates me, he must be good. I think that's just that's just the sad corner Aaron's just kind of been backed into because of the abuse and because as you say, nothing, no one did anything about it. So I don't, I don't think, I think Carl's completely right that Balin never really made it an overt emotional gesture to help Aaron, but in, in a twisted way, I think that's kind of why Aaron fixated on him because he was just like, ah, that's, that's proof that I'm right, that I'm just weak and worthless and that I just mm-hmm. have to, you know, starve myself and give myself over to the God. And Balin understands that it goes hand in hand, I think, with his, his love for the drowned God. And we'll, we'll get more into how Euron takes advantage of that relationship, of course, in our upcoming <laughs> for, Forsaken episodes. I think it's a really good point. I think when you're talking about how like abuse works and how someone who was abused as Aaron Dampere very much was by Euron Greyjoy growing up, you kind of get that worthless feeling about yourself. And so if someone else is telling you exactly who you think that you actually are, regardless of whether it's true or not, you tend to might tend to look at that person and be like, yeah, I can look up and respect this guy because he's, he's telling it as it actually is. I actually am just a worthless fucking worm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's exactly who the type of person that that's exactly, sounds like quite exactly the way that Balin Greyjoy might have reacted to Aaron Dampier, given how Balin, you know, reacts to Theon coming back to, yes, to Theon exactly. Rounds in A Clash of Kings, Theon won. It's very much not a warm relationship. It's very much Balin putting Theon in his place. And that's likely that it was the same dynamic working between Balin and Aaron Dampier back, uh, back in the day. That's a great point. You know, Balin uh, makes, you know, takes Theon's situation, choices he has not made, and says, this situation is your fault. This makes you bad. You're weak. You're unmanly. You're Greenlander. I bet he said similar things, except, in, you know, in a more sexual direction, probably about Aaron Dampere. Like, what? what, what why did Aaron abuse you? Were, you? were you asking for it? Did you pray for it, as Aaron says about him? He probably blamed him. And that's just, that's how Aaron ended up this way. And it's just, uh, ugh, ugh, what a mess. What a mess. As again, we're going to, we're going to be unfolding further. So mm-hmm. thank you so much, Carl Z, for the question. If you'd like to hear more about our thoughts on Aaron Greyjoy and the Forsaken, please consider becoming a poor fellow or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can listen to part two of our four-part analysis of The Winds of Winter the Forsaken, either later this week if you're watching it live, or uh, by the time this episode is released on, our, uh, on the release date for this one. For this one. Absolutely. We are going to uh, record that one on Thursday, and I'm going to be at the uh, editing helm there working on it overnight to try and get it out on uh, Friday morning for you, small fellow, small fellow, <laughs> for you, small council patrons, and for everyone else as the weekend progresses on it to uh, Monday itself for a release for our poor fellow patrons. So appreciate all of you guys' support. And if you guys have enjoyed those Forsaken episodes, let us know. And also, if you have questions about those episodes, if you have a question about our upcoming Forsaken episodes, please message us over at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOAF, where you can also become a sworn sword or higher patron and ask us questions on our main cast as well. But enough about patron, patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOAF. When we last left Davos Seaworth, he had been witness to Stannis Baratheon and Courtney Penrose's parlay outside of Storm's End. Let's find out what happens when he gets Stannis Baratheon alone in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings Davos 2 Part 2. Stannis said no word, but turned his horse around and started back toward his camp. The others followed. If we storm these walls, thousands will die, fretted ancient Lord Estremon, who was the king's grandfather on his mother's side. Uh, Better to hazard but a single life, surely. Our cause is righteous, so the gods must surely bless their champions' arms with victory. God, old man, thought Davos. You forget. We have only one now. Melisandre's Lord of Light. 
Oh, yeah, we're back with Davos, and I couldn't think of anyone better to play Davos than you, sir. <laughs> so with my, so with that in mind, buckle up, this is going to be another dialogue-heavy synopsis. We're not going to be doing a lot of synopsizing in this episode. We're going to be <laughs> doing a lot of dialogue and a lot of, like, play-acting and delivery. So let us know how we do. Stannis' men get to talking about who should be Stannis' champion. Sir John, Sir John Fosway would so totally do it. He would. It's just, you know, he's just not that really that good of a swordsman as Lord Karen is or Sir Gyardar. That's what he's really concerned about. Karen thinks it'll be glorious to win storms and in single combat, and Stannis has a different thought about it. Stannis raked them all with a look. You chatter like magpies and with less sense. I'll have quiet. The king's eyes fell on Davos. Sir, ride with me. He spurred his horse away from his followers. Only Melisandre kept pace, burying the great standard of the fired heart with the crown stag within, as if it had been swallowed whole. Huh. The stag swallowed whole by fire. Again, I'm not detecting any symbolism. We are pressing on. Davos notices all the nobles sideways eyeing each other at Stannis, asking for Davos to be here, and he thinks that the easygoing Renly never talked to his lords like that. But Stannis did. When he pulls up next to Stannis, Davos notices that Stannis he ain't looking good. Bags under his eyes and a ragged face. He eased back to a slow trot when his horse came up beside the king. Your grace? Seen at close hand, Stannis looked worse than Davos had realized from afar. His face had grown haggard, and he had dark circles under his eyes. A smuggler must be a fair judge of men, the king said. What do you make of this, Sir Courtney Penrose? A stubborn man, said Davos carefully. Hungry for death, I call it. He throws my part of my face, I, and throws his life away in the bargain, the lives of every man under those walls. Single combat. The king snorted in derision. No doubt he mistook me for Robert. More like he was desperate. What other hope does he have? None. The castle will fall. But how to do it quickly? Stannis starts doing that teeth-grinding, brooding bit that everybody loves him for, but then he brings up Sir Courtney's father. Sir A Lord Alistair Florent wants him here. What does Davos know about him? Well, Davos knows that Lord Penrose was old and dying, but he did greet Davos courteously back in the day. Awesome. Well, Lord Florent wants to put a noose around the old man's neck and force Cordy to surrender. What does Davos think of this? It was dangerous to oppose the Queen's men, but Davos had vowed always to tell his king the truth. I think that would be ill done, my liege. Sir Courtney will watch his father die before he would ever betray his trust. Would gain us nothing and bring dishonor to our cause. What dishonor? Stannis bristled. Would you have me spare the lives of traitors? You've spared the lives of those behind us. Do you scold me for that smuggler? It is not my place. Davos feared he had said too much. The king was relentless. You esteem this Penrose more than you do my lord's bannerman. Why? He keeps faith. To Stannis, Courtney's faith is misplaced, but Davos proves relentless himself. He keeps faith. Stannis decides to do a little Courtney Penrose routine, cascading the lords behind him as the ones who do not keep faith. Davos concurs, saying that their loyalty has been flexible to Robert, to Renly, to Stannis, and who the hell knows who they follow next, Joffrey. And Stannis laughs? Did, did I read that correctly in A Clash of Kings? He laughs? What the fuck is going on here? Stannis looks back to Melisandre and tells her that Davos tells the truth, and Melisandre neutrally concurs with Stannis' assessment. But then Stannis starts being human? Is that the correct word? He says that he missed Davos? Whoa. And all those lords behind him are traitors. Inconsistent traitors at that. Stannis needs those jabronis, though even though it makes him sick to his stomach to pardon them when he's punished men for lesser crimes. Davos should reproach his king. You reproach yourself more than I ever could, your grace. You must have these great lords to win your throne. 
But Davos is still lost in his prior thought. He smiles grimly and makes it plain that what he was talking about in terms of punishing people for lesser crimes, he was referring to taking Davos's finger bones. Davos reaches up to his pouch of finger bones for luck. Will he do this ever again? Perhaps. Perhaps. Stannis notices and asks why Davos keeps those bones. They remind me of what I was, where I came from. They remind me of your justice, my liege. It was justice, Stannis said. A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. Each should have its own reward. You were a hero and a smuggler. He glanced back at Lord Florin and the others, rainbow, and the others, rainbow knights and turned cloaks who are following a distance. These pardon lords would do well to reflect on that. Good men and true will fight for Joffrey, wrongly believing him to be the true king. A Northman might even say the same of Robb Stark. But these lords who flocked to my brother's banners knew him for a usurper. They turned their backs on the rightful king for no better reason than dreams of power and glory. And I have marked them for what they are. Pardon them. Yes, forgiven, but not forgotten. Stannis fell silent for a moment, brooding on his plans for justice. And then abruptly he said, What did the small folk say of Renly's death? Well, according to Davos, the small folk grieve. Stannis grieves too. No, no, not for the man he grew to be, but the boy that he was. Anyways, moving on, what did the small folk think about the news of Cersei's incest? Well, they shouted for King Stannis while the king's men were in town, but who knows what they did after. Stannis wonders if that meant they didn't believe in the proclamation. When I was smuggling, I learned that some men believe everything, and some nothing. We met both sorts. And there is another tale being spread as well. Stannis grows irritated, talking about the absurdity of the tale that Selyse cuckolded Stannis with Patchface and fathered Shireen through their fool. It's a vile tale, and it really, really hurt when Renly said as much during the parlay. Davos refuses to flatter Stannis, though. He says that the small folk were, like, probably telling the tale to each other after he left. Davos thinks back to how the story reached many of the towns and villages they visited before they had even arrived. Robert could piss in a cup and men would call it wine, but I offer them pure, cold water, and they squint in suspicion and mutter to each other about how queer it tastes. Stannis ground his teeth. If someone said I had magicked myself into a boar to kill Robert, likely they would have believed that as well. You cannot stop them talking, my liege, Davos said, but when you take your vengeance on your brother's true killers, the realm will know such tales for lies. Stannis only seemed to have here. I have no doubt that Cersei had a hand in Robert's death. I will have justice for him. I... And for Redet Stark and John Aaron as well. And for Renly? The words were out before Davos could stop to consider them. For a long time, the king did not speak. Then, very softly, he said, I, I dream of it, sometimes. Of Renly's dying, a green tent, candles, a woman screaming, and blood. Stannis looked down on his hands. I, I was still abed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. He, he tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh and my lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armored. I knew Renly would attack at break of day. Devon says I thrashed and cried out, but, but what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died, and when I woke, my hands were clean. Sir Davos Seaworth could feel his phantom fingertips start to itch. Something is wrong here, the one-time smuggler thought. Yet he nodded and said, I see. Stannis then talks about Renly's speech, thinking it mockery or defiance or maybe even a threat. He thought Renly was going for his sword, but then Renly only drew a peach. What was up with that? Why, why would Renly do that? Was there some sort of hidden meaning? The king gave a shake of his head like a dog shaking a rabbit to snap its neck. Only Renly could vex me so with a piece of fruit. He brought his doom on himself with his treason. But, but, but I did love him, Davos. I, I, I know that now. 
I swear I will go to my grave thinking of my brother's peach. And that is uh, Clash of Kings Davos 2 Part 2. I got a bit. So as much fun as it was last week to discuss Stannis and Courtney's parlay, this week's selection of Davos 2 is even better. What did you think of this chapter, sir? Agreed. Last week was all about Courtney Penrose versus Stannis and his new lords, with our POV Davos Seaworth mostly just waiting in the wings. Now he is summoned into the spotlight by both his king and his author to deliver his opinion on all these proceedings. The result is one of the most well-written and complex dialogue scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire, in which every line carries multiple meanings, what is not said matters as much as what is said, and even as we learn much more about Stannis, Davos, and their relationship, George preserves the mystery and ambiguity that makes this storyline great. Even more than the Courtney Penrose standoff last week, this scene makes Davos 2 one of the chief competitors for the title of best chapter in A Clash of Kings. Absolutely correct. I mean, when we talked last week about how Davos only has three chapters in A Clash of Kings and how the format just forced George to pick and choose the events that Davos was POV to, it kind of makes it interesting, right? Because we don't actually see Davos visiting villages and proclaiming Stannis's letter to the small folk. And this stands a little bit in contrast to what occurs with Davos in A Dance with Dragons, where George spends half of Davos's chapters charting his course to the Merman's court at White Harbor. And I've been on record as defending George's decision to write a lot of these travelogue chapters and to crop up in Feast and Dance. So that brings up the question, does that make George's decision not to feature Davos's journey around Westeros, proclaiming Stannis's letter to the small folk in A Clash of Kings, the wrong one? No, absolutely not. Let's dive back to why George R. R. Martin decided to create Davos as a point of view character in the first place. And this comes from a 2003 Sospeak Barton. George said that at first he was just going to use the original POVs from A Game of Thrones for the entire series. Then he realized that what he needed to see was Davos was what Stannis was doing, but he didn't want to use Stannis as a point of view. So he created Davos. Davos was his first added POV. The rest followed. So Davos's role in Clash, then, is intended to be the eyes on Stannis, learning about Stannis through someone, through someone who is sympathetic to him. George had different ideas for Davos's chapters in A Dance of Dragons, which are great, by the way, and those are reasons that we'll unpack in the next few years. But here, getting in depth on Davos's journey would have probably detracted from the narrative reason why Davos even exists as a point of view in A Clash of Kings. And boy, does George just nail this dynamic of exploring Stannis Baratheon through Davos's eyes in just about... No, it is. It is the best dialogue scene in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. I think I can conclusively say that after going through this chapter about 50 times in the past week or so. I find it hard to disagree with you. As awesome as the Stannis-Renly dialogue in Catalan 3 was, this might be even better. So, we left off last time with Courtney Penrose's sick burn. Bring on your storm, my lord, and recall, if you do, the name of this castle. Stannis has no response to that, so thoroughly did it deconstruct his campaign, his backstory, and his very soul. So, he rides away with his bannermen, including his grandpa, Lord Estermont, who frets that thousands will die needlessly if it comes to battle. Surely tis better to risk only one? And you can see George sowing the seeds for the arguments Melisandre and eventually Stannis himself will make about Edric Storm, sacrifice one life to save many. On the one hand, you can see a logic to this. This is even an admirable ideology from a certain point of view. Per Mr. Spock, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. The problem with applying this logic to Edric and later Shireen is that they don't consent to being used in this way, and arguably can't, being children and all. But even in this scenario, in which Stannis' chosen single combatant would be consenting, even eager to judge from his lords, this logic falls apart. 
What Lord Estermont's and later Melisandre's argument presupposes is that, quote, our cause is righteous, so it is inherently worth paying the price. But what if your cause stops being righteous? What if it's not worth all this sacrifice to put Stannis in power, whether that power is secular or supernatural in origin? What if that worldview is flawed from the get-go and you're just piling up corpses? You can see George working in slippages, little flaws that end up turning Team Stannis' Team Stannis's arguments into rot from the inside out, starting with Lord Estermont citing <laughs> gods. The gods will bless our champion because our cause is righteous. But central to Stannis' cause is that those gods are false gods, sacrificed to R'hllor on Dragonstone. So even as Lord Estermont declares their cause righteous, he accidentally exposes that there is no real consensus on what that cause actually is. Whom do they serve here? Lord Estermont is falling back on precisely the cultural moors that Stannis is burning down. He will not be blessed by gods he has forsaken. Such are the wages of the fiery ladder. John Fossaway and Bryce Karen further undercut their cause as righteousness without seeming to realize it. They point out that since garrison duty is for old men and green boys, Stannis' champion would probably have an easy time of it. In other words, it wouldn't be an honorable duel of equals. It would be a slaughter. Does this give them pause? Nope. It makes them all the more eager for, quote, an easy victory. Once more, we are seeing that honor is a shadow on a wall. It does not speak to inner worth, the heroic, self-sacrificing drive to defend the innocent and lift up the downtrodden. Rather, honor as it's being used here is a class signifier, linked to the sir in front of your name, the fancy expensive armor you wear, the learned ability to perform chivalry, not necessarily practice it. The fact that these men think there is glory to be had in slaying someone who does not stand a chance against them speaks to how power has corrupted the idea of glory. This is a persistent problem across the series, of course, but especially in Stannis' camp. Look at Godric the Giant Slayer, who chased a fleeing giant to cut off his head for honor and glory. It all comes back to the duality of Stannis and thus the duality of man. The appearance of being godlike, the protagonist of reality, versus actually being worthy of it. Stannis' new lords are just the worst. Narcissistic hypocrites one and all. So I find it very cathartic when Stannis, quote, rakes them with his eyes and tells them to shut the fuck up. He's right. They chatter like magpies and make less sense. I would want quiet too if I was facing down the prospect of dealing with these assholes every day for the rest of my life. George is separating Stannis out from these arrogant high school bullies, using them as a vessel to tell them off, shattering their pretentious self-image. Good work, your grace. But then, as always, the flip side. Stannis isn't actually challenging their worldview. He's not implementing any changes. All he's doing is telling them to shut up. Is that enough? Practically speaking, no, it's not. All Stannis accomplishes here is alienating these men. As Davos notes, Renly never spoke to them this way, and that's why they liked him. I think we all know someone who says they're committed to telling the truth, but whose truth-telling mostly seems to take the form of insults. That's Stannis in this scene. He's like a George's dad in Seinfeld when he gets everyone around the table for Festivus. I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about him. <laughs> him ordering his lords to shut their useless pie holes is personally endearing, at least in my opinion. But politically speaking, it is disastrous, exemplifying why Stannis was in such a weak position to begin with. Stannis is just being self-indulgent. These insults serve no purpose but to make him feel better about associating himself with these gaudy gadflies, and that doesn't justify it. Exactly. I mean, at a surface level, Stannis is telling these bros to just shut the fuck up is 
yeah, it's a kind of a fuck yeah moment. Yeah, you should shut up. We hate you. But it's also Stannis being in a surface level insult comedian. He's just roasting these guys, not actually providing any like strong critiques of who they actually are and what they stand for. He knows that he needs these lords and he needs, more importantly, their soldiers in order to take King's Landing. So Stannis can't tell them to resign their posts and he can't hang them for traitors or he loses his newfound army that he had sacrificed so much in order to gain. But winning King's Landing is just one part of the deal. What Stannis is doing is politically stupid, as you were pointing out. In a world where Stannis wins at the Blackwater, he's going to have these lords around him and he needs to win the peace with them in some fashion. Pissing these lords off the entire time they're fighting their way to the Iron Throne doesn't, doesn't exactly ensure that they're Orbell, but it makes it pretty likely they're going to return the disfavor Stannis is showing them with disloyalty someday down the road. So I think Emma and I are both left kind of one cheering Stannis for dismissing them, but cringing at his political, as lack of political acumen. And there's no greater cultural critique in what Stannis is doing. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, though. Exactly. Very well said. And of course, this is also just Stannis' personality at work, that of a lobster, as Loras says in season one of the show. He is an introverted loner among boastful extroverts, and that is hell. I'm an introvert myself, meaning not that I can't function around others, but that I draw energy from being alone and I lose energy when I hang around other people for a long time. I sympathize with Stannis in that regard. But leadership demands you be an extrovert, or at least that you perform extroversion. I don't want to be in charge of any huge organization precisely because I'm an introvert. Stannis has set a trap for himself and walked right into it. I would be more sympathetic than I am if he was genuinely being forced into this into this position, like like young Griff who doesn't really seem to have any other options. But not, he's not. Stannis chose all this. Stannis could have just abdicated the throne and sat by himself on Dragonstone for the rest of his days. Everyone would probably leave him alone because no one likes him. Why didn't he do that? Because of Robert. Stannis felt that clawing hole inside, preventing him from being at peace even when left alone. He needs the approval of others. He needs their love. He just doesn't want to be around them at all. <laughs> and that is a tragic, untenable state of affairs, which has been magnified to disastrous size by the fiery crown on his head and that fiery heart on his banner. It is all fuel for the fire. Stannis feels he must keep up with Robert and Renly even from beyond the grave, that he must beat them at their own game even though he hates everything about playing it. This contradiction, as I've been saying, pushes Stannis in two directions at once, bringing out his best self and worst self simultaneously. His best self is the one that calls forth Davos, and only Davos, to ride with him. Davos might feel out of place in this company, as we talked about last time, but for Stannis, he is the only worthy one here. All these lords obsessed with their status, lying to each other about honor and glory as the sun winks off their expensive armor. But the king wants the smuggler, born in the slums the one who had to invent his own last name, the one who tells the truth. And this makes the lords uneasy, every bit as much as Stannis' insults. And good, it should make them uneasy. <laughs> Davos calls their bluffs, a loyal vassal from outside the nobility. He threatens their status just by being there. And when Stannis tells them to shut up, but calls on Davos to speak, they get a glimpse of a whole new social order, a better one. On the other hand... Davos himself thinks it's unfortunate that Stannis lacks his brother's knack for easy courtesies. He doesn't take catharsis from Stannis' insults. He laments them. He thinks to himself that as an Onion Knight, he's used to being talked to this way. The nobility insult the small folk and do worse than that without even thinking about it. That's just the way the world works. But Davos knows the noble-born are not used to this treatment. 
He considers those insults to be part of Stannis' worst self, the self that was rejected relative to his brothers, for good reason. And as he notes, it is captured in Stannis' banner. The crowned stag, the source of Stannis' power, the foundation of his claim, the memory of Robert for whom he is ostensibly doing all of this, has been swallowed whole by R'hllor. The heart on fire for Stannis is what the reign of the crowned stag actually looked like for him. His true, his true aim is not to uphold that legacy, it's to set it on fire and replace it with his own. All that talk about Stannis being the last Baratheon, the heir to both Storm's End and the Iron Throne, all of it is technically true, but it doesn't feel like it, and Davos knows it. What Davos can't quite articulate due to his dogged loyalty to the man who raised him up is that this feels like the rise of the villain, every bit as much as the rise of the hero. The fire has swallowed the crown. Stannis' fury has overcome his cause. His victories will bring neither him nor Westeros peace, but instead turn to ash in his mouth. And that process of corruption has already begun. When Davos gets up close, Stannis looks terrible. A haggard face, dark circles under his eyes, as if he's aged years. This has both secular and supernatural ramifications. It is common for ensorcelled kings in stories to reflect their inner corruption on the surface of their sacred body. As the soul suffers, as the land suffers, so the body suffers, because the body of the king is the land, or so the conceptual framework goes, the price of magic, the price of playing god. But even as George plays with Fisher King tropes with one hand, he is moving into different territory with the other. There are grounded, real-world reasons for Stannis to look this way. That is grief aging his skin. That is guilt hollowing him out under the eyes, and behind them as well. This isn't just about Melisandre's shadow-binding powers sucking the soul out of him in a classic sorceress fashion. This is specifically about what the shadow did next, murder Renly. Stannis can barely deal with the horror of what he has done here, and Courtney Penrose has just made it impossible for him to compartmentalize it safely away in his nightmares. So he calls forth Davos, his embodied conscience, living evidence of his best self, to reassure him that he has not just become a villain <laughs> and help him decide what to do next. Those are all like fantastic points. I love that really, really a lot. Um, you know, I've been doing some rereading of A Game of Thrones, the first book in A Song of Ice and Fire. You might have heard of it. And I realized that what George is kind of doing with this scene we're about to unpack here is kind of remixing the Ned and Robert scene from Eddard's third chapter in A Game of Thrones. If you remember that chapter at all from, you know, two years going into that chapter. It's the one where Robert wakes Ned up early in the morning. They go and ride off alone under the pretext of getting fresh air. The reality is that Robert wanted to get Ned's take on the letter that Sir Jorah Mormont sent to Varys informing Robert that Danny has wed Khal Drogo. The scene is full of a lot of emotion reminiscing on old times and a lot of Ned guarding himself against revealing anything about John's mother or really his own suspicions and feelings about Jamie, especially given the context that he is now suspecting the Lancers had something to do with John Aaron's death since they got the letter from Lysa and informing them as much. Here again, we have another Baratheon talking to his oldest best friend to write out, quote, alone to seek his counsel on what he should do. Oh, and by the way, this Baratheon also looks quite different from the last time that Davos slash Ned had seen this so-called Baratheon. And like the Ned Robert scene, Davos holds back his true feelings and emotions, all the while counseling this Baratheon to not act immorally, to not do something heinous. Interestingly, George has sympathetic characters talking alone with all three Baratheon brothers. It's not just Ned and Robert. It's not just Davos and, and Stannis. We also can dial back and see that 
Catelyn and Brenly have a singular conversation alone up in the castle at Bitterbridge. The dynamic is one that I was talking about in my opening thoughts. These POV characters get eyes on the king and explore who they are truly inside. Ned found Robert to be insecure, still feeding on his bitterness over Lyanna and his anger at the Targaryens. Catelyn found the true Renly, where there were no smiles and only open threats against Rob and his desire to reunite the Kingdom of Westeros violently and kill all potential usurpers to his throne, which is just a bitter, hilarious irony. So the question we're going to talk about now is what does Davos find with Stannis? What does this Ned Stark figure, archetypal figure, find with this Baratheon claimant to the Iron Throne? Stannis' opening line here is so telling. A smuggler must be a fair judge of men. So Davos's utility to Stannis is rooted in his background, in the class distinction between him and the other lords. Stannis is implying here that the noble-born need not be fair judges of men, or at least not to the same extent. You can point out, oh, you know, Rob Stark's poor judgment got him killed, but that's an exception. Generally speaking, as Roose Bolton says, there are pardons for the Rob Starks and not for the Vargo Hotes. They're in power. They're not going to pay the consequences for poor judgment. We're seeing that in action in this chapter. Renly's former lords judged Renly poorly, according to Stannis anyway, yet they aren't suffering for it. But if Davos of Fleabottom misjudged someone in his smuggling days, he ran the risk of losing his head for it. Not only because he was constantly dealing with pirates and other thieves, but he also had to worry about running afoul of punishment-obsessed lords like Stannis. And this is a real-world phenomenon in every political and economic system. There is no greater teacher than consequences, and the powerful suffer fewer consequences. That is not to say that everyone on the bottom is automatically a genius and everyone on top is automatically a <laughs> fool and people in power never suffer consequences for their actions. But for those on top, broadly speaking, so many risks are abstract, hypothetical, academic sources of debate rather than the determining factors of life and death. Power over other people goes hand in hand with escaping the consequences of what you do with that power. Power covers its tracks, washing its hands of blood. As such, you wind up with powerful people treating everything like a game of risk between each other, stagnating in both their moral and intellectual development. We see that very strongly over in Carth. Alistair Florent has been sheltered his whole life, and Davos has not. So naturally, Davos has useful advice to give, and Alistair does not. However, Davos' useful advice is tempered by Stannis' own blind spots. His own position atop the pyramid. The way he is both less and more arrogant than his noble-born peers. On the one hand, he seeks out Davos's advice. On the other hand, Davos spends this scene smoothing and shaping his advice into words that will suit Stannis's mindset that will placate him properly. When Stannis asks Davos what he thinks of Courtney Penrose, Davos does not automatically respond with the truth. He feels the need to, quote, carefully describe him as stubborn. Well, if this is the one true relationship, the dynamic by which Stannis accesses truth, why does Davos feel the need to use euphemisms? Well, because like Crescent before him, he realizes that Stannis' isolation has made it very difficult to communicate effectively with him at all. Stannis may find Davos more admirable, admirable and likable than the likes of Alistair Florent and Bryce Cameron, but that does not mean Davos can just relax and say whatever. Davos knows that if he pushes Stannis too far, he and his family could lose everything. He's only a knight, his sons only have a bright future, if Stannis approves of him. So Davos, Davos settles on stubborn, a value-neutral statement that could be seen as a compliment or a criticism, and one that could also describe Stannis, because I think Davos is also trying to get Stannis to see himself in Courtenay. 
And it's also like the subtext of the next part of the conversation we're going to cover next week, where the topic turns to Lord Meadows as the next Castellan of Storm's End after Courtney mysteriously passes away very peacefully in his sleep, where Davos says, I remember another stripling who was given command of Storm's End. He could not have been more than 20. And Stan's replies, Lord Meadows is not as stone-headed stubborn as I was. It's kind of a little hilarious that Stannis is able to point to his own stubbornness and be like, yeah, I was that guy back in the day. But he still, some for some reason, cannot see that that same person staring back at him at that parlay we covered last week in the first part of a Clash of Kings Davos two in the form of Sir Courtney Penrose. That's a great point. Stannis doesn't want to think about that because Courtney hates him and is telling him he's the villain, so he doesn't want to see him in the mirror. So Stannis leapfrogs that insight, instead answering his own question, providing the answer he wanted to hear from Davos rather than the one Davos gave. <laughs> Stannis wants to think of Courtney as, quote, hungry for death, throwing away his life and those of his men because that will justify killing them all. They asked for it. It's their own fault. And as always, it comes back to Robert. Courtney must have demanded single combat because he mistook me for Robert, the kind of man who would eagerly accept single combat. Stannis is obsessed with escaping Robert's shadow, but he can't because he has so thoroughly internalized the idea that he is a lesser version of his brothers. Courtney never brought up Robert at all. I doubt he was remotely thinking of Robert in this moment. But Robert's ghost, and now Renly's, live rent-free in Stannis's head. His deepest fear is he will always be mistaken for them, never being recognized or loved on his own terms. Even when he shows up at the wall, John thinks Robert at first. And that's, of course, why Stannis <laughs> has his new banner. Davos, though, loves Stannis on his own terms, and so is trying to help Stannis get past his self-sabotaging bullshit and stop seeing everything through the lens of Robert. Davos sees Courtney Penrose as a desperate man who was out of good options. Stannis once more ignores his own part in that on how he has made Courtney desperate, focusing instead purely on how to take the castle. As he considers, he grinds his teeth. A constant Stannis quirk from his introduction forward. It defines him perfectly. His anger and anxiety lead him to self-sabotage. You know, you're not helping yourself there, Stannis, by grinding your teeth. I don't think Westeros has particularly advanced dentistry. <laughs> if, he, if Stannis lived to an old age, I think he would come to regret that. But he does it because that's the only way he can deal with what he's feeling. Lord Alistair has put forward a solution, and like all Florent solutions, it is a distasteful <laughs> mix of cruelty and cowardice. He, he wants to threaten to hang old Lord Penrose, Courtenay's father. It is difficult to express how wretched a move this would be. Lord Penrose is an old man, sickly and failing as Davos describes him. The journey alone could kill him. That's to say nothing of the psychological torment of draping a rope around his neck, forcing him to wait while the son he must have been fearing for this whole time decides his fate and probably abandons him to die. If I had just come into Stannis' service and watched him actually do that, I would be rethinking the terms of those service in a hurry. Davos, too, does not want to win this way. Moreover, Davos is personally affronted by a threat to Lord Penrose because Lord Penrose treated him kindly. Like an equal, something so, so few lords are willing to do. Even Stannis calls Davos smuggler whenever Davos pisses him off. Davos has gotten used to disrespect, to dehumanization, to the presumption he doesn't belong here. So when he meets someone who doesn't treat him that way, someone who conducts themselves with the substance of honor rather than the surface, he remembers it. And he doesn't just remember it, he tries to honor it in turn. Strictly speaking, the fact that Lord Penrose was kind to Davos doesn't have any bearing on the discussion at hand. As Davos himself said in his introductory scene back on Dragonstone, words are wind. While Lord Penrose might have said no in a kinder fashion, 
it was still no. Stannis puts forth the argument that this makes him a traitor, every bit as much as those who are more dismissive to Davos or refuse to see him at all. He's not wrong exactly, but as is often the case with Stannis, he is overlooking nuances, subtleties, individual nooks and crannies that don't fit the monolithic statements of one king, one god, one realm, etc. Davos, by contrast, honors the individual. He honors the complex, contradictory nature of humanity. He is opposed to the idea of apotheosis. No one is so easily definable. So Lord Penrose should be spared in his mind. He should be honored not for his strict legal status, but the person he is when you stare into his eyes and talk to him. Davos consistently embodies the idea of mercy, and mercy is something you give to people in deliberate defiance of the question of whether they deserve it or not. Just as the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, so the quality of mercy is not strained. It may be bestowed upon the traitorous as well as the innocent. It's not fair. That's the whole point. Mercy is a quality gone forsaken by most of the powerful people in Westeros, and even more so by those who do their dirty work. Davos is a beacon of light in a weary world. But George does not write him as an unrealistic caricature of a good guy. He drops Davos into one viper's nest after another, <laughs> forcing him to find his way out with his body and soul intact. So before Davos delivers his message of mercy and honoring the individual to his conflicted king, he internally acknowledges the price he might have to pay. It was dangerous to oppose the queen's men, but Davos had vowed always to tell his king the truth. This is a tension that will come to dominate Davos' story in A Storm of Swords, the king's man versus the queen's men, wrestling for Stannis' soul. With Crescent dead, seemingly everyone else in Stannis' camp is content, even eager, to gain power through Melisandre and her red god. We've already seen that in this chapter with Alistair Florent and the other Fairweather converts. They want in with Stannis. Melisandre is close with Stannis. It's simple political <laughs> math as far as they're concerned. Yeah, it is math for them. But I think there's also like kind of an interesting narrative weirdness to these newfound followers of lore. They're referred to in this chapter as, quote, Queen's men. Queen's men are followers of her lore, but which queen exactly are they following here? Davos actually kind of answers this question here in, in a Clash of Kings context, which is Stannis had left his men on Dragonstone along with her uncle Axel, but the queen's men were more numerous and powerful than ever, and Alistair Florent was the foremost. So in this context, queen's men seems to indicate those followers of Stannis who are Selyse loyalists. But interestingly, this is uh, this kind of makes this makes sense in so much as we know that Selyse was the first one to convert to Belor before Stannis fled back to Dragonstone after John Arryn's death, and the followers of the Red God that Crescent met in the Clash prologue and Davos explored in his first chapter were likely ones who converted along with Selyse. However, it's interesting that they're referred to as Queen's Men here in this chapter when Selyse is back on Dragonstone, and there's another potential queenly figure in Stannis' camp here, because Melisandre rises in prominence throughout the narrative, and the context begins to kind of switch and shift. And we see allusions to this in Storm, but by dance, Asha Greyjoy makes it explicit in the King's Prize chapter. Asha would have called them King's Men, but the other Stormlanders in Crownland Men named them Queen's Men, though the queen they followed was the Red One at Castle Black not the wife that Stannis Baratheon had left behind at Eastwatch by the sea. There's something really insidious about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit more sympathetic to Selyse than the gen pop of Song of Ice and Fire fans, but Melisandre and the Red God are kind of like virus-like, taking over the court, converting Stannis. Hell, Melisandre is even performing the queenly duties of soothing Stannis to sleep every single night. 
It's Damon Julian and the Guru Plantation from Fever Dream, Chapter 10, which will be out for all poor fellow above patrons this week if you're watching live and will already be out by the time you're listening on the release date, where we do talk about that very dynamic which occurs in Fever Dream, Chapter 10. And as always, the Baratheon sigil shrinks and shrinks and shrinks encased by fire. Mm-hmm. It's like the Grinch's heart, but in reverse, it's getting smaller. <laughs> and coupled with Stannis' isolation and alienation from his peers... This means that only Davos has a strong relationship with Stannis that is not filtered through Melisandre. That's not to say Davos can part Stannis from Melisandre's influence. She is hovering in the background, quite literally, throughout this scene. But it means that Davos can address Stannis on different terms, calling on different parts of his personality, worldview, and backstory. So when the Queen's men are pushing Stannis to the edge of the abyss, whether trying to get him to threaten Lord Penrose here or attack Claw Isle in a Storm of Swords... Only Davos can pull him back. And Stannis knows that, which is why he calls Davos forth. But Davos will always start off at a disadvantage relative to the Queen's men, because they were born to this life and he was not. They have considerably more resources to draw upon than he does, and they have far less to lose than he does. So he hesitates, knowing that by speaking against their plan, he could be ensuring his doom at their hands. And not only his doom, but that of his wife and sons. All he has to sustain himself is the bond between him and his king. The bond forged in mercy, deliverance, sacrifice, and blood, right here at Storm's End, back in the last war. And that bond has been strengthened ever since, as Davos said in his first chapter in this book, by truth. It would make sense for Davos to be the ultimate toady, to bow and scrape before all the nobleborn <laughs> just to hold on to the position he has attained. But to do so would be to sacrifice the part of himself that actually makes him useful to his king the part of himself that actually sustains the bond that keeps him in power. Davos is therefore constantly at odds with himself. His self-interest is never clear, even though his moral compass is as straight an arrow as they come in Westeros. He settles on truth. What the Queen's men propose is dishonorable. Threatening to hang Lord Penrose would undercut the righteousness of which Lord Estermont spoke. Stannis bristles at that, naming Lord Penrose a traitor. But Davos points out that he has already spared the lives of so many traitors, so many former bannermen of Renly who are riding behind them right now. It's interesting to note how Stannis interprets that. He does not take it as an indication that he should show mercy to Lord Penrose. In fact, he never brings up Lord Penrose again. Stannis does not instinctively dwell on mercy, on the better angels of our nature. He instinctively dwells on hypocrisy, and he immediately realizes that Davos is calling him a hypocrite. You scold me for that, smuggler. As I said... Stannis has this nasty habit of putting Davos in his place by calling him Smuggler whenever Davos annoys him. The most prominent example is in A Storm of Swords, when Davos smuggles Edric Storm away and tells Stannis that, you fucked up supremely. And Stannis <laughs> responds, do you mock me to my face? Must I learn a king's duty from an onion smuggler? Now, of course, Stannis does submit to learn a king's duty from a smuggler. He admits as much to John later in the book. Davos was right about my duty, and I was wrong. But that doesn't change the fact that his instinctive reaction is to enforce the class hierarchies of Westeros, using them as an excuse to avoid self-examination. In spite of raising Davos up to knighthood, in spite of raising him up to lordship later on, Stannis is ultimately no Beric Dondarrion. He is embedded in the system, part of the Matrix. He is a better version of a bad idea, not an entirely new idea, and so he must always be backed into doing the right thing. Davos must always speak carefully in euphemisms. As such, 
Davos immediately fears that he has gone too far. It is not my place, he says, because again, Davos is constantly 24-7 shaken by the fear that he will step out of line. He's already risen so far above his station, so out of my place within Westerosi norms, that he fears the slightest misstep will send him tumbling down. I tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. Yet, quote, the king was relentless. Having kicked the dust aside and discovered the core of Davos's true argument, Stannis isn't going to let it go just because Davos feels nervous. Whereas Renly delighted in obfuscation and half-truths, Stannis's conversational technique, as George puts it, is to gnaw obstacles down like a mastiff with a bone. Stannis realizes that Davos is doing more than just refusing to condemn the Penroses. No, Davos actively prefers the Penroses to those former Renly supporters who now back Stannis. And Stannis demands to know why that is. Because Davos' opinion, Davos's opinion matters to Stannis even when he doesn't take Davos' advice. Why does my conscience support my enemies? I must know. Why does Davos, quote, esteem the Penroses? Because they keep faith. Because they have honor. Because despite being on different sides of the war, I feel kinship with them. Stannis snaps back that their faith is misplaced. The Penroses invested their faith in a usurper with no claim to power, and moreover, he's dead now. What worth that faith? Davos acknowledges the folly of that, but for him, that's not nearly as important as the faith itself. The sincere, honorable belief in something. To him, it doesn't really matter what. Courtney believed in Renly, as I believe in Stannis. And that, in Davos' mind, makes Courtney more admirable than the shining knights and lords who follow them now, because they keep faith with nothing but their own ambition. He's reluctant to say that, because the Queen's men were more numerous and powerful than ever. If word got back to them of what he is saying here, he would be in real trouble. But as he thinks to himself, he has gone too far to play coy with Stannis now. Gone too far, not just in this conversation, but in their intertwined lives. Davos is all in. He has to be. And so he delivers the point he's been driving at. Courtney Penrose may have picked the wrong side in Stannis' eyes, but at least he is reliable and predictable. There is honor in that. The men behind them now? If they were so willing to jump ship the Stannis after Renly died, pretending as though that was always the plan, <laughs> what will they do next? Who will they betray Stannis for? What happens when they tire of his grouchy attitude? As Bronn says about the sellswords he hires to fight for Tyrion later in the book, they may kill for him, but they won't die for him. Davos, by contrast, absolutely would die for Stannis, as Courtney Penrose would have died for Renly and will die for Edric Storm. Self-sacrifice, the essence of loyalty, putting it all on the line for what you believe. Just like Courtney before him, Davos has used his true words to cut through the deceitful words of these turncloak lords, like a knife through butter. And Stannis laughs. Wait, Stannis laughing? Is he having a stroke? <laughs> we were assured by Cresson, the man who raised a Stannis, that Stannis never learned how to laugh, that his scowl is, is a permanent fixture on his face. And everything we have heard and seen of him in the story so far has pretty much backed that up. He's been described as cold, inexorable, sour, disapproving of all manner of cheerful noise. We have been shown, including in this chapter, that this is part of why most people prefer the company of his brothers. They embody the good times. They were fun to be around. Stannis is not. Stannis has been portrayed as too haunted by the loss of his parents and Proudwing, and also too up his own ass about his image, <laughs> to ever let loose and laugh. Yet now we see an exception. A crack in the armor. That tight, frozen face giving way to warm flesh. Just like how the Penroses cannot be fairly summarized as traitors to Stannis' cause, 
Stannis is not merely the emotionless duty robot he pretends to be. It's not that he's incapable of laughter. It's just he doesn't see much in his life and world to laugh about. But Davos is his conscience, that shriveled Grinch heart. And so Davos makes him laugh. Not by telling a joke, but by telling the bitterly ironic truth. And so Stannis says, I told you, Melisandre, he said to the Red Woman. My onion knight tells me the truth. I see you know him well, your grace, the Red Woman said. And this is really interesting to me, because it implies that Stannis and Melisandre had, like, a whole conversation about Davos beforehand, which reframes <laughs> this conversation in turn. As I said, Stannis never brings up Lord Penrose again when the conversation turns back to how they should take Storm's End. And this suggests to me, as with Claw Isle, that Stannis was never actually going to go with that plan. This whole conversation has been a test for Davos. Stannis wanted to see if his Onion Knight still gives him the truth, even as the circumstances have changed dramatically around them. As Davos thought to himself, telling Stannis these hard truths carries even more risk than usual now. But Davos did it anyway, proving hmm. that Stannis was right to trust him, proving that Davos is indeed still the one genuinely honorable and loyal vassal in Stannis' camp. He passed the test, and Melisandre seems impressed. Maybe she doubted Davos. But now she sees, as she says, that Stannis knows Davos well. This Onion Knight is a truthful man. Yeah, and I kind of wonder whether Davos serves as a sort of blind spot for Melisandre when she mm. looks into the fires. And I'm spitballing here, but some people are asking for it in the chat on our, on our live cast. But if I had to fill in Melisandre's dialogue right before Stannis told her that Davos tells him the truth, I'd say it was probably something like... Uh, I do not know this Sir Davos you speak of all that well. Can he truly be trusted, your grace, or some such? Now, the reason why I think Davos is a blind spot in the flames is because there are times when Melisandre does see Davos true. Like that one time where he planned to very peacefully murder her in A Storm of Swords in his second chapter in A Storm of Swords. <laughs> And there are other times when she doesn't see, like when Davos spirits Edric Storm away. Think of that line from Davos' sixth chapter in A Storm of Swords. Davos watched Melisandre's pale, heart-shaped face. He saw the flicker of dismay there, the sudden uncertainty. She did not see it. The gap in what Melisandre perceives in Davos is potent because he's one of the few people in all of A Song of Ice and, in all of A Song of Ice and Fire that can slip one by her. That's an interesting dynamic, which is going to set these two in significant conflict, comma, Storm of Swords. Yes, indeed it will. Can't wait to get to that. And so Stannis opens his heart, <laughs> dropping the walls of alienation and isolation he otherwise maintains around himself. He laughs, the catharsis he so often denies himself, and says, Davos, I have missed you sorely. Hmm. This is a crucial line for Stannis' character and the Stannis-Davos dynamic. First of all, Stannis has stopped calling him Sir or Smuggler, instead calling Davos by his name. This is a moment of intimacy, of equal treatment like that which Davos received from Lord Penrose. Stannis has stopped talking to Davos like a cock, a placeholder in the social structure atop which Stannis sits, and started talking to him like a person, an individual, someone with a name. His name is Davos, and Stannis has missed him. Again, the idea of Stannis missing someone does not line up with his reputation. Stannis is the loner, the outcast, left cold in the shadows as the sun shines on his brothers. He's not supposed to be close enough to anyone to miss them. Davos, once more, is the exception. Stannis missed his presence. He wanted Davos around. His life was lesser, bleaker, devoid of flavor without that onion in the stew. And Stannis is perceptive enough, empathetic enough in this moment, to know that this is about more than Davos giving him honest advice, though it's largely about that. <laughs> this is once more about hypocrisy, 
But instead of Stannis yelling about how everyone else is hypocrites, as per usual, this time, finally, he looks in the mirror and starts to recognize his own failure. Stannis zooms in on Davos the individual and tries to see his campaign through Davos's eyes. He realizes how absurd, how infuriating this must seem. I saved your life. You raised me up for it, but also took my fingers for smuggling. Yet, you spared these lords behind us even that sacrifice? They never saved you. In fact, they abandoned you when you needed them, but now you pardon them as you did not me? Stannis acknowledges how shameful this is. He has broken from his model of iron justice, which means he could have done it before. He could have just pardoned Davos. Why is Stannis committing this wretched hypocrisy? Because he needs these lords. He needs them regardless of their treason, regardless of their pompous, corrupt uselessness. <laughs> in other words, it is the structure of power in Westeros that has produced this hypocrisy. Because those lords have power, and because Stannis needs that power to attain his own, they get off scot-free. They pay no consequences for what they have done. Davos of Fleabottom, by contrast, had no power when he sailed into Storm's End. He gave his mercy in the form of onions before ensuring any reward for it. As such, Stannis did not need to spare him the punishment. So he didn't. One man commits a worse crime than the other, yet does not pay for it, while the man who did a good deed pays for his much lesser crime. Why? Because power corrupts. Always. This state of affairs sickens Stannis. He is an aware enough man, a decent enough man, to know that this is no worthy model of justice, and that is more than his turncloak lords ever achieve. But being aware of your sins is not enough. Not if you don't do anything about it. Not if you commit yourself to carrying out these abuses of power anyway. Stannis does not learn anything from this. He doesn't really apply it to the wildlings when he gets north. He doesn't rebuild his model of justice from scratch as he really should. To do so would mean giving up on the bitter dream that drives him on. The hole left inside by his brothers. The all-consuming desire to beat them at their own game. If Stannis was able to give all that up, he would not only be a better man, he would be a much happier man. It's the only way to find the peace that has eluded him all his life. But as Asha says, he will never, ever turn back from his course. All these contradictions will add up until it ends with him throwing his heart and daughter into the fire. All he can bring himself to do here is acknowledge the contradiction. All he can do is tell Davos that, yeah, this is fucked up. You have every right to reproach me. <laughs> Again, the duality of Stannis. Here is the king saying to a man born in the slums that his, his bitter grievances are justified, that the peasant has the right to reproach the king if the king is failing in his duty. And that's a big deal. That's something that the other kings aren't even considering doing. This is a, a breakdown in the power gap, allowing the downtrodden to punch up for once. This is an example of how Stannis' alienation from his peers has led him to look differently on members of the less fortunate classes, and good for him. On the other hand, again, Stannis is succumbing to the temptation that self-awareness is enough. It's not. Being a kinder master is an improvement, strictly speaking, but you are still making a master of yourself. If the system is indeed that fucked, why does Stannis not unfuck it? Well, because he wants to be in charge of it. If he messes with it too much, he might threaten his own power, as well as those of the Turncloak Lords, and you can't have that. How many real-world politicians have we all seen rise to power promising to change the system, only to reach the top and decide that, hmm, system looks great from up here? <laughs> this is the great quandary, of course, of revolutionary politics, that it is necessary, but not sufficient, to bring down the elites. 
you're going to recreate them if you leave their tools lying around. Tools which, of course, vary across space and time, but tools like militarism and nationalism, overuse of natural resources, and, of course, the star of the show, the embodiment of corruption, the root of all evil, <laughs> money. As the, they say in, a, in Defy Blood, Spike Lee's recent movie, war is about money, and money is about war. And it's really hard to get around that, even with the best of intentions. Power vacuums will often, certainly not always, but often be filled by those who would be equally at home under fascism as socialism, because all they're interested in is their own ambition and power. And that's why I recommend for anyone interested in leftist theory that after they lay the base down with Granddaddy Marx himself, <laughs> they move on to other writers, more contemporary writers, black writers here in America, people in Asia and Africa and Central America who have experiences you know, forged by both colonialism and the Cold War, people who filter revolutionary ideals through an understanding of how those ideals can be and have been corrupted by power. How do we make it work? How do we fight the infection? Stannis often feels to me like a post-revolutionary leader who intellectually understands why power corrupts, <laughs> but he lacks the empathy and imagination to really do anything about it. You have every right to reproach me, he says. I know that I am bad. But that individual awareness is not enough to change the system. Deeper, more radical changes are needed. I think it's interesting and important, though, that Davos himself is not just George's vessel for a critique. You know, Davos doesn't actually deliver this critique of Stannis because the peasants are not perfect articulations of theory, <laughs> divine beings ready to reshape power through insight. They're as flawed as anyone else, enthralled to their understanding of power like anyone else, shaped by fear, desire, and backstory like anyone else. They deserve a better life, not because they are automatically better people than the powerful. They deserve a better life precisely because they are made of the same stuff. It makes these gaps ridiculous. For Davos, King Stannis is his god. And so his corruption and failure are inconveniences to be argued away, dismissed lest they tear his fragile life apart and take his family with it. Wonderfully said, uh, even though I'm not a Marxist, but that's okay. We can, uh, I'm sure, I, as people have said, this is the uh, the podcast to convert me over to Marxist, Marxism at some point, which <laughs> all good stuff. And, and I think like in the best possible light, Stannis' hypocrisy over the justice he gave to Davos versus the pardons he is giving to Renly's former lords is a touchstone towards a deeper meaning of justice than what has been exercised in Westeros previously. In Stannis' mind, he isn't in a position to affect the radical revolutionary change that you were speaking of. Not anyways, at least. You know, he was once, and still is, Robert's brother, and he was once a small counselor. And at that point, he could only urge Robert to scour the court clean, execute Varys, and send Jaime to the wall. The king was the only one who could affect that sort of change, right? Basically, Stannis is articulating a vision that he has to sit the Iron Throne to affect justice. And in Storm, he kind of speaks to the type of ideal you desire in Stannis as a sovereign, where he tells Davos, I shall bring justice to Westeros, a thing Sir Axel understands as little as he does war. Claw Isle would gain me naught, and it was evil, just as you said. Southgar must pay the traitor's price himself in his own person, and when I come into my kingdom, he shall. Every man shall reap what he has sown from the highest lord to the lowest gutter rat, and some will lose more than the tips of their fingers, I promise you. They have made my kingdom bleed, and I do not forget that. Again, this is post-Battle of Blackwater, after most of the tale of traitor lords he has trailing them behind in this conversation with him in Davos have all either died or bent the knee to Joffrey at that point. And Stannis is in fantasy land at that point in Storm of Swords, given that he has no support, has no army, and is just waiting to get his ass killed by the Lancers, the next fleet that comes their way. So there is that important context to consider with that Storm quote, which everyone kind of throws around to talk about how awesome Stannis is. There's another aspect, too. 
And then we should bring it to this discussion. If Stannis believes that the source of justice is the Iron Throne, and he plans to reform, uh, and he plans for reform measures, uh, and he plans to reform it, we also have to look at how those reform measures were received and how they were executed in Westerosi history. And I think the best example is Aegon V's reign. Though we don't know the specifics of the reform measures that were received in Westerosi history, we do know the response from the small folk and the nobility about them. Though beloved by the small folk, King Aegon made many enemies amongst the lords of the realm whose powers he wished to curtail. He enacted numerous reforms and granted rights and protections to the commons that they had never known before. But each of these measures provoked fierce opposition and sometimes open defiance amongst the lords. The most outspoken, outspoken of his foes went so far as to denounce Aegon V as a, quote, bloody-headed tyrant intent on depriving us of our gods given rights and liberties. Now, as I was saying, I'm not a Marxist, and in most circumstances, I tend to favor this kind of Edmund Burke and I incrementalism in pursuing political reform. Whatever the reforms Aegon V accomplished, they ended up being rolled back when Tywin Lannister was the hand of the king under Aegon's grandson, Aerys II. In my co at the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire podcast, Jim, aka Something Like a Lawyer, once wrote on Aegon V that Aegon's chief mistake was pushing reformation too fast, too hard, without a support base to give him the political clout he needed. Reformers work against institutions by their very nature, and reform is a costly, painstaking process, and the larger the institution, the less fluid it can be, and the more resistant to change. Now, this is not the Aegon the Fifth podcast. This is a podcast about <laughs> Stannis and Davos. So to get back to something we were talking about before, even in the best possible context with Stannis on the throne and Stannis at his very best intentions at the forefront of his reign on the Iron Throne, Stannis's ideas about rewarding good and punishing evil is a reform with zero. You heard that right. Zero possibility of outlasting, of outlasting Stannis's probably very, very short time on the Iron Throne. He doesn't have Renly's grace to build alliances and create coalitions to make reform a possibility. He doesn't have the ability to talk with to talk with people and get buy-in from his fellow nobles to kind of do this kind of incremental reform that I tend to be more in favor of. He only has Davos. And yes, Davos is awesome. And he is his one true friend and he provides him great advice, but he is not a great and high lord of Westeros. And that does end up handicapping Stannis in the long term. I think you make great points about how, you know, egg on, egg on five, egg, you know, pushed too far and too fast, didn't have the support, so it all fell apart. I completely agree with you there. I think where I differ somewhat from you and Jim is what the successful coalition would look like, because I don't think you're getting the lords on board with reducing their own power. I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it matters how nice you are to them. Like, you know, you've talked before, Jim has talked in that essay about Jaharis the Conciliator as an alternative model. But, you know, Jaehaerys had it easy when he was doing things like taking down the faith militant, things that, you know, a lot of lords were in favor of by that point. When it came to, say, making reforms in the north, he had to use the implicit threat of force. And he was able to do that because he had dragons. So I think in terms of what I think a successful coalition to break the lord's power would look like, it would have to be political organization among the other classes. Egg would have to be able to show up at the head of a peasant army, or if not something that dramatic, he would have to go to the lord and say, look, if you don't get on board with my reforms, guess what? I've arranged a strike among your farmers. Guess what? You're not going to be able to produce any wool. Guess what? If you produce any wool, no one's going to die. No one's going to buy it in King's Landing. I've spoken with the merchants. We're taking care of that. That's how you pressure these people into action, I think, not just accepting that they're in power. I think the, the problem I sometimes have with institutionally minded models of reform, although I think they're often very appropriate, is that they take for granted that the institution is worthy and that the actors at the table should be there. And sometimes 
They just shouldn't. Sometimes they need to just be removed oh, sure. from power entirely. And I think for me, that's 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 more the critique I would make of Egon Five. And I think the problem with Stannis is that even though he is taking some bold and good steps beyond his class, I just think the notion of him, you know, actively turning all his attention to uplifting another class to use them as a cudgel against the nobility, that that just is not within his worldview. That's just not within his mindset. But again, you know, this is this is my perspective on, on the story as it unfolds. <laughs> this is not necessarily George's perspective, and, and more, you know, most importantly, it's not not it's not actually Davos's perspective. Right. Davos argues that Stannis reproaches himself more than Davos ever could. In Davos's mind, Stannis taking the throne is an absolute good, the way the world should be. Stannis needs these great lords to do so. Davos understands that. But Stannis, again, grimly acknowledges his own hypocrisy. He needs them, fingers and all, it seems. That's Stannis openly admitting what his earlier line about punishing better men for lesser crimes only hinted at. He realizes that he is not living up to the model of justice that led him to cut the fingers off the man who just saved his life. Yet Davos does not condemn him for this. Instead, his fingers fly automatically to the finger bones around his neck. They are his luck. He is spiritually invested in them as a symbol of this worthy trade he made. In his mind, it was worth it this, for this statistically unlikely rise to power, for better lives for his children, to ensure his good fortune. It is an ironic, but in my opinion, very realistic twist that Stannis is actually harder on himself than Davos is. Stannis's life did not change when he raised up Davos, but Davos's did. Stannis can feel the hypocrisy all the keener because that's really the only thing at stake for him. For Davos, the hypocrisy of Stannis' justice is secondary to what Stannis has specifically done for him and his family. When we get to A Storm of Swords, we will find Davos wrestling with the concept that this blind loyalty to Stannis is actually a bad thing, <laughs> that it got his sons killed. But for now, those bones remain around his neck, and Stannis asks him why. He says he's often wondered why Davos keeps them. Again, this is Stannis being more empathetic than he usually is. We never got the impression before that he cared what was going on in anyone else's head. In response, Davos lies. He tells Stannis that he keeps the finger bones as a reminder of Stannis' justice. But that's not why. We know that's not why, because Davos is a POV, and we've just seen in his thoughts that he associates his finger bones not with justice, but with luck. But he knows Stannis does not want to hear that. Stannis wants to associate those bones with justice. He wants to use them, use Davos as a way of reassuring himself that, as George put it, he is still, in spite of everything, a righteous man. Luck indicates events out of Stannis' control. Davos thinks he ultimately owes his fortune to, well, fortune. It was a chance, a roll of the dice. It's an expression of humility that is linked to Davos' belief in mercy, because luck, like mercy, is something that just befalls you regardless of merit. <laughs> An abiding belief in luck, I think, is what like mentally got Davos through the, the hardest days in his old life as a smuggler. But someone who wants to be the one true king with his one true god reigning over his one true realm does not want to hear that life is basically random. <laughs> Davos is telling the truth when he says that his bones remind him of who he was, where he came from. But who he was and where he came from stands in direct contrast to Stannis' model of justice. That's why Stannis cut his fingers off in the first place. Stannis then delivers one of the signature lines that define his character. A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. Each should have its own reward. And as per usual with Stannis, this moment signifies in multiple directions at once. George is using Stannis to make the point that a hero and a villain can share the same skin. 
A good act does not wash out the bad. A bad act does not wash out the good. This is a perfect encapsulation of his character's complexity. Ignoring the angel on Stannis' shoulder to focus on the devil, or vice versa, is to ignore the vast, contradictory nature of the human soul. None of us are so simple. And the same applies to Melisandre. Neither her horrifying atrocities, nor her overall contributions to saving all of humanity, cancel out the other. Both are true. We must keep both in our mind. This has implications beyond just how we deal with fictional characters, however. It has implications for how we deal with each other and ourselves in real life. How often have we heard victims of assault and murder described as no angel? That's irrelevant, because none of us are angels. Nor are any of us devils. But the fact that people who commit atrocities also experience love and laughter and sweetness in their lives, that doesn't exactly help their victims any. We are all made of angels and devils. What separates us is power, because power inflates the amount of damage you can inflict on others. Well, does it not also inflate the amount of good you can do? In theory, yes. But I think you can see in A Song of Ice and Fire a growing certainty that power feeds the devil more than the angel. Take Stannis and Davos as a representative example. Stannis believes that how he treated Davos after the siege was pure justice. Here is a reward for your heroism. Here is a punishment for your crimes. Here's the problem. The punishment was permanent. The reward was not. Davos could lose his social status at any moment, but he can never get his fingers back. Stannis gave him a place at his table, but he can withdraw it at will, and if he does, there's nothing Davos can, can do about it, so he has to placate Stannis constantly. Stannis gave him a keep, lands of his own, servants for Lady Maria. But those signifiers also make House Seaworth a potential target for the Golden Company once they invade the Stormlands. And even before that, they make Davos a target for the Nobleborn. He has farther to fall now. Stannis gave Davos' sons a chance to live a more prosperous life. But four of them burn on the Blackwater in his service. Would a smuggler's life really have been worse than that? Moreover, his sons would have only ended up on the wall, as Davos fears, because of men like Stannis. Because men like Stannis would send them there. It is power, not merely ill luck, that threatened Davos' family in the first place. And that power dynamic continues to threaten Davos to this very day. We see Davos's fear of the Queen's men in action throughout Clash and Storm, with him carefully picking his words with Sir Axel Florent in Davos's first chapter. After Axel declares that he had a vision of maidens dancing in the flames, interpreting this to mean that this was the glory that awaited Stannis after taking King's Landing. Davos's response: Stannis has no taste for such dancing, but he dared not offend the Queen's uncle. I only saw fire, he said, but the smoke was making my eyes water. That was here is telling Axel a half-truth. Sound familiar? It should. He did only see fire, but it wasn't because of the smoke that he saw nothing else in the fires. It was because he saw nothing else in the fires. It's the same dynamic here between Stannis and Davos. He uses half-truths and obfuscation because he knows the type of danger he's in by speaking a little bit too brusquely, by speaking a little bit too Stannis-like to Stannis himself. So he dances around the truth because while fans cheer Stannis as the Punisher, Davos is a little less cheery about this idea of being open and honest with a guy who has a merciless reputation and who, again, chopped off all most of his fingers. Furthermore, think back to Davos 1 and what Davos knows to be true about what happens if Stannis falls. A few of his lords lingered to speak in quiet voices upwind of the fire. They fell silent when they saw Davos looking at them. Should Stannis fall, they will, put me, they will pull me down in an instant. What Davos also knows is that there are pardons and forgiveness for former traitorous lords who bring their levies to Stannis' side. The same cannot be said for a Davos that Stannis perceives as playing traitor to his king. So it puts him in a really fucking tough spot. 
what to do with a king who keeps pressing him for the truth when that truth could potentially get him killed. What do you do? Exactly right. And that's why Davos is not a simplistic character, even though he's, you know, generally one of the, the better, more straight arrow people in Westeros, because the situations in which he's in are very complicated. Through all these potential rises and falls, the one constant is that Davos doesn't have his fingers anymore. And this horrifies young Edric Storm, who says that Stannis should not have done that. And this perfectly captures why Stannis' reputation got so negative to begin with. What he sees as justice, balanced as all things should be, is seen from the outside as shocking cruelty. So while in theory a good act does not wash out the bad and a bad act does not wash out the good, the way Stannis has practiced that theory is not remotely equal. Moreover, Stannis' worldview here is deeply flawed because it presumes a flawless knowledge of what a good act and a bad act even are in the first place. Stannis says that Davos was a hero and a smuggler, as though those are the opposite ends of the spectrum, <laughs> as though smuggling is tantamount to villainy, and that is ridiculous. Smuggling may be illegal, but that doesn't make it immoral, any more than poaching, the crime that got our first POV will sent to the wall for life. Both In both Westeros' economy and our own, we rely on black markets to fill the gaps left by the official markets. There is no such thing as a truly free market, or really anything close to it. As such, what is available, to whom, and for how much, will always be filtered through corrupted power. Given that, the official legally sanctioned distribution of goods and resources will always leave people out. It's by design, a feature, not a bug. But the people left out aren't just going to starve. They're going to turn to the black market. What else are they going to do? What else are the people currently starving in, in King's Landing, down in, the, down in the port, down in the harbor, just trying to find something to eat? Are we going to tell them with a straight face, no, you can't rely on smugglers, that's illegal. <laughs> Moreover, what Stannis is really talking about here is property rights. And property rights are not an immutable constant, but something that shifts depending on the law. As we see with Salador San, a pirate can become an admiral overnight with virtually no change in their practice. The tools we associate with smugglers and pirates, theft, fraud, violence, are also used by their official counterparts in merchant fleets and government navies just on a larger scale. Whatever unsavory actions Davos took part in as a smuggler, and I'm sure he did, they're a drop in the bucket compared to the damage done by the way the likes of the Lannisters and the Malisters and the Tyrells wield their power over the resources their people need and want. In Davos's first chapter in A Dance with Dragons, he meets Godric Burrell, Lord of Sisterton, who regularly uses his night lamp to lure ships to their doom. So what makes him different from a pirate? The lord next to his name. That's it. Stannis once threatened him about it, but the lowborn smugglers who do far less damage, they don't get threats. They just get executed. Quote-unquote legal merchants across our real-world history have always made a habit of purchasing from smugglers to avoid taxes. That's the whole reason smugglers exist. There is a market for them. It is only Davos's gray area outside the law that put him in the position to, stave Stan to save Stannis in the first place. As George said, he thought he would get a better price for his onions that way. Again in A Dance with Dragons, Davos recalls how he used to facilitate trade between the wildlings and those south of the Wall. And his captain lost his head for that. What good did that serve, I ask you? Not only is smuggling not villainy, it's actually one of the less exploitative ways to make a buck in Westeros. To suggest otherwise is to ignore the hypocrisy baked into the system. Like, like what should Davos have done? Gone and worked for the man? Well, who mm -hmm. was the man in Davos's heyday? When he raised his eyes from Fleabottom, who was he looking at at the Red Keep? Oh, that's right, the Mad King. Mm -hmm. That's what the official face of power looked like, and in those circumstances, good men become outlaws. 
Right. And I think like this is to get more into like that hypocrisy of Stannis. I mean, Stannis is focusing on this consistency and that when he's in a pinch, he falls back on the law as the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong when he's really not sure of what is the actual ethical thing or not. Smuggling is illegal. Well, then you're going to lose a few figures for smuggling. It's just the law. I'm just doing what the law says. Right. And that's what makes my action righteous. Right. No, not really. Of course, my American heart is wondering at this whole imposing duties and tariffs without the consent of the governed. But hey, I will push, push that aside for right now. <laughs> it's not as though the people voted in representatives that voted for these taxes. These were imposed by lords who achieved power through the monopoly of violence. And they thus ran a massive protection racket all over Westeros, which then allowed for the black market to exist, which allowed for Davos Seawood to become a smuggler and embrace something resembling the free market. But we return back to a point from earlier. The way Stannis regards smuggling is displaying him in a light where we know that even the best version of Stannis in the best possible circumstances is still, and I it just breaks my heart to say this, chopping off the fingers of free marketeers. <laughs> the worst possible crime, I know. <laughs> I know that hurts your heart, Jeff. So from one angle, Stannis' philosophy seems even-handed. It acknowledges the complexity of man, how we are both devil and angel, a struggle that never ends. Moreover, this philosophy offers a realistic opportunity for redemption. Your good deeds do not erase the bad deeds you have done, but by the same token, the fact that you have done bad deeds in the past does not invalidate your good deeds in the present. I was recently rewatching one of my favorite movies, uh, Manhunter, directed by uh, Michael Mann, one of the earlier incarnations of the, of the Hannibal Lecter mythos. And at one point he says to his wife, we got a good, don't we? And she says, we have it better than good, and everything you went through before is what lets you know that. That's how you know it's good, because it didn't used to be. We are never still. We are in a constant state of flux, evolution carrying itself forward on the level of the individual soul as well as that of the species as a whole. And I personally take a great deal of comfort from that idea. It allows me to contextualize bad things I have done in a way that does not negate my responsibility for them, but also prevents me from just dwelling on how horrible I am, because that's not going to do anyone any good. Do the right thing because you believe it's the right thing to do. Not because you're desperate to even out some karmic scorecard that doesn't actually exist anyway. But from another angle, Stannis' philosophy is fatally flawed, because his punishments linger longer than his rewards, and because his understanding of what even qualifies as a good or a bad act in the first place has been hopelessly corrupted by power. It always comes back to power. The problem is not evil individuals, because no one is 100% evil. When Catelyn tells Jaime later in this book that Westeros is the way it is because of men like him, she's wrong. Westeros is the way it is because of power. Men whom Catelyn would consider to be far more upstanding individuals than Jaime Lannister have done worse things, like her beloved father who wiped out a village during Robert's Rebellion. Hoster believed that doing so was justice for a bad act. The good books defied their oaths to him. They stayed loyal to the Mad King, a cartoonishly unworthy authority figure. But as George points out to us when Arya visited that village, the Goodbrooks themselves were able to make peace and move on like nothing ever happened. That didn't help the dead any, and the dead were powerless people who had no say in any of this. Once again, the punishment lingers longer than the reward. Hoster does not see this as cruel, as profoundly unjust. Why? Is it because Hoster Tilly was, se Hoster Tilly was secretly our cartoonishly unworthy authority figure like the Mad King? <laughs> doesn't really seem like it. It was the dictates of power that drove him to wipe out that village, that drove him to force an abortion upon his unknowing and unwilling daughter. Hoster was not an unusually cruel man. That's the point. That's what's so terrifying. A beloved man of his class, doing what he thought was right, did these awful things, 
to stay in power. So what must change here is not merely the empowerment of individuals with stronger moral fiber, because the very act of empowerment is probably going to weaken that moral fiber. What must change here is the ability of one flawed, selfish, struggling person to wield such staggering power over the life and death of another. A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. I believe that. But I also believe that not all acts are created equal in their scope, in their impact, because of power. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, once upon a time when I was young and a soldier, we were graded on scorecards for our tactics on a long patrol. One of the ways we could influence our score to the positive or the negative is by accruing what they called a major plus, a minor plus, a minor negative, or a major or a major negative. In a Song of Ice and Fire Stannis context, a major plus would be Davos smuggling onions and fish into Storm's End. A major negative, it's the law, I guess, would be smuggling in the first place because Stannis is very much opposed to that because it is against the law. There's a dualistic antagonism in delineating good acts and bad acts. That's a major part of this chapter. We talked about extremism last week, about how this whole chapter deals with like the extremes of good and bad. And we see it here again, where things can only be chalked up to good and evil. And a lot of this duality feels kind of like French Catharism or Syrian Manichaeism rolled up into this religion known as Relorism. Have you heard of it? It's a good one. But really, I think we see why Stance became a convert to Relor. Perhaps he wasn't really into the God part of it, but the theology part of it, that, but the theology part of it, that really appealed to him. It appeals for him to have things be lawful or unlawful, good or bad. That's that dichotomy that Stannis loves. But what if Davos's act of smuggling was a good act and against the law? Where precisely did Davos get those fish and onions from that he smuggled into Storm's End? You think he purchased it from one of those governmentally licensed markets and brought them to Storm's End? I don't think so. So in my mind, Davos kind of works like a circus air rifle that is just ready to explode the balloon of Stannis' assumptions around the world. And I just love that dynamic between these two because it just focuses this conversation piece so, it's just so fraught with so many dynamics, emotional dynamics coming in here, past experiences into just this fantastic and wonderfully compelling conversation, conversation, conversation piece between these two men and these two friends. Exactly right. That's what Davos is here to do. Challenge Stannis' narrative. Force him to in a, in, to an uncomfortable place where he has to look, look at himself. And moving from the general to the specific, Stannis applies this simultaneously inspiring and terrifying philosophy of his to the war as a whole, and the lords riding behind them now. And this is where Stannis gets some of his most interesting political dialogue. And while, again, it doesn't quite redeem him, it demonstrates that he's more than his reputation suggests. It turns out that they are all traitors and all my enemies, and kings have no friends, only subjects and enemies, did not quite capture the scope of Stannis' political thought. <laughs> when he's not feeling the need to strut around, waving Lightbringer, proving himself as big a man as Robert, he does acknowledge nuances, individualities, shades of grey. While he despises the Lannisters, and for good reason, he acknowledges that the men fighting for them are not responsible for all of their crimes. There are plenty of, quote, good men and true, good men and true on that side of the war. Varys describes them as good men serving a bad cause. Of course, hilariously, Stannis can only interpret the presence of decent people on the Lannister side as them believing Joffrey to be the true king. In truth, many just don't care. Tywin's lords have a history of following him, and their soldiers know that their only other option is to desert and join the broken men. Most of the gold cloaks just want to eat. Maybe the, quote, good men and true are those who don't commit themselves to any of these crowned assholes and instead just try to be good to their fellow man, people like Septon Maribald. Still, 
I think Stannis deserves credit for extending his perspective beyond himself, trying to understand where the rest of Westeros is coming from. Why aren't they with me? What are their reasons besides just being bad? <laughs> Better yet is what he says next, when he says that there are people who consider Joffrey to be the true king. He says, a Northman might even say the same of Robb Stark. This is an absolutely crucial moment in Stannis' story, and one I think often goes overlooked. From the end of A Storm of Swords forward, Stannis' campaign is tied up with that of the Starks. He rides north and he ends up marching through Stark territory to take Winterfell away from the Boltons. He marches alongside Northmen who have not bent the knee to him, but nevertheless have forged an alliance with him because he came to them and asked for support. As I said back in Catalan 3, the Stark position is a complex and ambiguous one from Team Stannis' perspective, because they're not on his side exactly, but they haven't bent the knee to any other claimant either. They want out of the Iron Throne, period. And Stannis, in this moment, gets it. He understands that from the northern perspective, Rob is the rightful king, not him. The Northmen are not traitors. They have an ideology that is different from Stannis's, but it's an ideology that he admits he respects. Exactly. And, you know, Stannis might allow for why some of these guys might be in it. And he's somewhat right by mistake. You do have your Great Johns and your Wyman Manderleys who are in it because they feel that Joffrey performed an errors-like role in murdering their liege lord. The Boltons, though, are probably not in it for the North and for the Ned, of course. I think, though, you're right to talk about how critical an admission this is by Stannis, though. He's not getting past his idea of not being the king of a broken realm precisely, but he's displaying an empathy for those he perceives as his enemy. On that point, I kind of wonder whether Catelyn's point from the parlay back in Catelyn's third chapter in A Clash of King about Ned never being Stannis' enemy and then also saying that Rob is extending the hand of friendship to all is kind of having an impact on Stannis. It's not an ideological one exactly, I don't think, but it's kind of an emotional one. Hey, what if not? Every, what if everyone is not out to fuck me completely out of my rights and treat me like dog shit? <laughs> what a fucking concept for Stannis Baratheon. So I think it's that emotional aspect of it that really kind of factors in it. And I like this by George because I like it because it speaks to character growth in a secondary character, which is one of George's primary strengths in writing A Song of Ice and Fire. As you can see from the multitude of people who have, are in this fandom, you have people who have loved characters as far and wide as Hoster Blackwood, who is off of like, what, a dozen lines before A Dance with Dragons? And yet George builds complexity and builds nuance into these characters, and he develops their characters through these uh, these primary point of view characters which are his primary characters I would I would argue and Stannis here is really showing some character growth from potentially from what he experienced from talking with Catelyn back just a few chapters ago he perfectly said I think Stannis has, has taken this step forward taken this leap of empathy for people some people in Joffrey's camp for some people in Rob's camp but that stands in dramatic contrast to the lords riding behind Stannis and Davos now they have no ideology no cause they are serving they backed Renly for power full stop I appreciate this distinction Stannis is drawing. I think he's right on the money, and I think it's an encouraging sign he's taking Lannister and Stark perspectives into account. But back again we go to the flip side. The problem <laughs> is that his disdain for these turncloak lords is purely superficial. It's not reflected in his actions. He's not taking on their power in any practical way. He just hints and alludes maybe he'll do that at some undefined point in the future. As we've said, Stannis does his best work in the dark. He confines this revelation to his conversation with Davos. The Turncloak Lords don't suffer for this distinction beyond insults. And once again, we are seeing Stannis bump up against the limits of his worldview. Much as he, quote, broods on his plans for justice, he lacks the imagination to bring it about. And all at once, he seems to realize that. 
Out of nowhere, he starts asking Davos about what the small folk think of all this. What did they think of Renly's death? What did they think of the news of the twincest? And this is like a a hilarious example of an old-fashioned patrician elite trying to expand his worldview. (laughs) Oh, right, the peasants! You there, my one peasant friend! What do they think of all this? (laughs) Under the surface... I think this is Stannis contemplating how faithless and useless his own class is, and so abruptly wondering if he might be better off using the techniques I was talking about, if he might be better off rousing the small folk on his behalf against the lords. And once more, we see the duality of Stannis at work. On the one hand, there is some unusual forward thinking going on here, very different from a lot of people in his class. On the other, it is an arbitrary passing moment, unconnected to concrete action. Rather than devoting himself, like his fellow Azor Ahai figure Beric Dondarrion, to redistributing his privileges among the small folk, standing with them against their oppressors, Stannis just wonders, idly, if they might like him better than his peers do. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out they don't. (laughs) They loved Renly, and they grieve for him now. Stannis' response is, fools love a fool, because he's not invested in the masses beyond their utility to him. Stannis is not interested in interrogating why Renly was more popular than him. He He can only rationalize it as folly. I don't think he's wrong about that, actually, but (laughs) that lack of interest kills any chance Stannis has of reorienting his campaign in a more genuinely populist direction. Agreed. And at the same time, it's still the common men who continue to have faith in their king as Stannis' army marches through the frozen hell in the north and advance the dragons. Now, we've all had those bosses, right? Those just terrible, shitty bosses in whatever terrible, shitty way they were shitty, terrible bosses. And then they move on, or they're fired, hopefully. And then a new boss comes in and improves things, marginally. And yet it earns the loyalty of some of the people who are working for them. Stannis kind of reminds me of this kind of new boss ideal. These small folk soldiers probably had a bad lot with their lords, but hey, Stannis is marginally better. He is at least acknowledging that we have a bad lot in this life. He's even got a former peasant for a friend. Could we have said the same for Robert? Not really. Could we have said the same for Renly? Nope, not really again. Joffrey? Hell no. But again, it's reforms on the marginal level. Had Stannis come in with a Beric Dundarian-like equality or hell, even an Aegon V-like bill of reform, he might have earned the loyalty of the small folk. And it's such an untapped place for Stannis to draw strength from. One need only to look at how the Sparrows movement is able to coalesce popularly around the High Sparrow, who has so many of Stannis' character traits, the misogyny, the very strong (laughs) dualism that it goes in with being right and wrong or sinful or unsinful. Mm -hmm. And you know, for a guy who is supremely militarily gifted, who is always on the hunt for more soldiers, who is constantly begging John for advice on where he can find more troops... It's practically a character flaw that Stannis never thinks, oh yeah, the small folk, I can make use of them in my army, right? Hell, Stannis doesn't even have to be ideologically aligned to him, and he never will be ideologically aligned to them. All he has to do is just tactically concede a few things, proclaim it loudly in a letter, and then send his men through all of Westeros, just as he just did with sending a letter through all of Westeros with the letter of Cersei's incest, proclaiming it loudly that Stannis fights for the small folk. And here are... Three reforms that Stance will bring when he sits at the Iron Throne. You guys are going to love it. So join in. Sign up with my army right now and then. I'm spitballing, obviously, but you can see what I mean here. Anyways, enough of my AU theory. Back to the chapter. <laughs> no, you're totally right, because that would be a model where Stannis isn't necessarily giving up his own power, but he is he's trying to find a, a different power base for it. And I think that would, you know... Who knows if that would really succeed? Who knows if Stannis would actually be able to pull that off? But the point is, is that he's rejecting it. The point is, is that he's really not thinking about it. Davos, meanwhile, <laughs> stays grounded in the individuality, complexity, and irreducibility of humanity. The people cheered for you when we were there. 
Who knows what they did when we left? Some people believe everything. Some people believe nothing. There is no iron constant, Your Grace. Moreover, Stannis' true tale has effectively been countered by the one the Lannisters and Littlefinger came up with, that Shireen was fathered by Patchface. The waters have been muddied. To a third-party observer, it just seems like Stannis and the Lannisters are throwing these rumors back and forth, equally true or not. As Littlefinger noted, the small folk enjoy spreading these kinds of rumors about lords as proud and prickly as Stannis. It reassures people the powerful aren't so special. But Stannis cannot bring himself to think critically about how he has contributed to his own reputation, how his alienation and isolation are sabotaging his campaign. Instead, as always, it comes back around to Robert. Robert could piss in a cup and men would call it wine, but I offer them pure cold water and they squint in suspicion and mutter to each other about how queer it tastes. If someone had said I had magicked myself into a boar to kill Robert, likely they would believe that as well. As always, I feel two ways at once about this. On one hand, it's heartbreaking that Stannis believes he will just simply never be good enough. Robert's reign amounted to wine-scented piss. Yet people still loved him because he was charming and fun. Stannis offers truth. But people don't trust him like they did Robert, so they don't believe. He feels powerless in the face of a realm and species that seem to hate him just because. As Stannis acknowledges, his relationship with Robert was so bad, and his reputation at large so poor, that people would happily believe he personally killed Robert. On the other hand, when Stannis says, magicked myself into something to kill my brother, hey dude, that's exactly what just happened with you and Renly. Stannis is 100% leaning into that reputation now. He thinks it's inevitable, so even as it hurts, he never comes up with a different way to be. Davos tries to get Stannis to move past all of this. You put that crown of thorns on your own head, your grace. You can take it off at any time. You are wounding yourself with no purpose, obsessed with your brother's ghosts instead of devoting yourself to the living. You can't stop them talking. You can't just erase your negative reputation overnight at will. All you can do is let your actions speak for you. All you can do is become the man you want to be. This is very good advice for everyone, not just Stannis. And Stannis will listen to this advice in a storm of swords. But this is a clash of kings, and so Stannis ignores <laughs> Davos' wise words. He is back to brooding on his plans for justice. He will have justice for Robert's death by taking down Cersei, justice for Jon Arryn, justice for Ned Stark. That's a fist pump moment for sure. A pledge to take down the arrogant, corrupt Lannisters who have murdered their way to the top. Go, Stannis, go. Then again, he is the one who left Robert in the lion's den when he fled back to Dragonstone, pretty much just to save himself. And as rereaders, we know that yeah, the Lannisters didn't actually kill Jon Arryn. So while there is definitely catharsis to be had in imagining Stannis striding into the Red Keep and stringing all the conspirators up in their own webs, we must, once, we must once more reckon with how the flaws in his mindset make him dangerous as well as inspiring. As always, Davos is here to complicate his king's simple narrative, reminding him of the value of the individual, of the exception to his rule. But what about Renly, Stannis? Any justice there? Well, no, because Stannis has already rejected the concept of getting justice for Renly. Who did the deed matters not. This hypocrisy undercuts his desire to get justice for those other men. The difference, as I said last week, is that Stannis himself is ultimately the guilty party here. Getting justice for Renly would mean turning that all-seeing, all-judging, fiery gaze inwards. Mm -hmm. By raising this topic, Davos has finally pierced Stannis' defenses. The granite walls he has raised around himself to prevent anyone from hurting him like Robert did. 
Stannis externalized that tearful loneliness, that sorrow that the big brother for whom he laid his life on the line never loved him back. He's externalized it all as fury. And that fury claimed Renly's life. Stannis is disarmed by the intimacy and potency of this challenge. He drops the facade and reveals how he really feels right now, struck through with guilt and self-loathing. We knew that Catelyn felt Stannis' presence in the tent when Renly died, but now we know that at some level, Stannis really was there. He was conscious within his shadow. He saw the candles. He heard Brienne screaming. He felt the blood on his hands, on his hands. And no matter what he does in the daylight, they are never going to be clean again. Oh, sure, Stannis says his hands are clean, but that's about as believable as him staying in the Storm of Swords that he doesn't actually want the crown. Stannis is terrified of his own desires, so he pretends he doesn't have them. In the moment, as Renly died, Stannis in his dreams seemed to realize the horror of what he was doing. He groaned, he cried out. He tried to stop it from happening, like Joel in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind tries to stop the erasure of the memories he's triggered. It's too late. Now Stannis is left alone in the daylight with his new lords, men he transparently hates. And Courtney Penrose, the man in the mirror, is telling him he's the villain. Robert is gone. Renly is gone. Stannis is left with his bad dreams. With the memory of a peach. What did Renly mean by it? Stannis is obsessed, but he can't figure it out. Did Renly pull out that peach just to make me look foolish? Was it a genuine threat? Or was Renly just a laughing child all along, not realizing this was for real until it was too late? Stannis shakes his head like a dog snapping a rabbit's neck, as George puts it. Like a killer, a predator, a hunting animal. That's who he is, and he hates it. But he can't think of any other way to be. Stannis falls back on the fig leaf of treason, of crime and punishment, the dynamic that dictates his life. Renly brought this on himself. And this is such a haunting, heartbreaking moment because it's a moment in which a lifelong authoritarian realizes that the hippies were right all along. Love is all there is. Not just a nice benefit, not a side effect to come home to at the end of the day. No, love is all there is. Everything else is bullshit, pretense, shadows on walls. Everything else fades before the Reaper. Love is the only true immortality. Love is what lasts about us. Love is what Stannis remembers about Renly. I loved my little brother. He will go to his grave thinking of his brother's peach, his brother's smile, his brother's blood gushing from his brother's throat. It's too late, always was, and always will be. Stannis has given up on life and can only stare at it in his rearview mirror as he trudges his way forward to death. He says he doesn't know what the peach means, and that's true in the sense that he lacks Renly's sense of humor and joie de vivre. But at a deeper level, no, Stannis knows exactly what the peach meant. It was the life he could have lived and didn't. It was all he could have given for love's sake and didn't. It makes me think of the end of the uh, Brazilian short film Isle of Flowers, which I recommend everyone check out. It's probably the most succinct and potent case against capitalism I've ever encountered. <laughs> and the last line of it is, Freedom is a word the human dream feeds off, but no one can explain nor fail to understand. We might not be able to agree on a definition of freedom, but you know it when you see it. Or more accurately, you know it when you don't see it. Stannis cannot explain the peach, but nor can he fail to understand it. His dream feeds off it, but he has woken up to a world in which he has forsaken it. He has set his heart on fire. Beautifully said. I love every single line that you said there. Man. Well, thank you, buddy. 
your your monologue when we were doing the the peach scene back from from Catlin three. This is the great just kind of uh, compliment to that. So it's it's really really well said. And I, and I think this is not the last time that Stannis is going to set his heart on fire by killing someone of his own blood, someone that he is deeply related to, that he relates to in a deep level. Because we have Shireen, who still lives as of the end of A Dance with Dragons, but we know that what her ultimate fate is going to be in the story. And we will unpack that at significant length. Come a storm of swords. And we also did talk about that at significant length. We did our prologue episodes back uh, 20 years ago at this point. But it's it's all really sad, I think, ultimately. And I think like Stannis's story, in some ways, it feels very triumphant in moments. When you have Stannis, Stannis, Stannis coming through Mance Raider's wildlings. When you have this long digression on justice and law that we have here, there are moments where you're like, yeah, Stannis, get it. But ultimately, I don't think that's the takeaway that George wants us to take from this story. I think the ultimate takeaway is that Stannis' story ends in tragedy, much as it started, much as the prologue has Stannis as the sad boy on Dragonstone, the epilogue to his story, whatever it's going to be, whenever it's going to be, will likely have him being a sad boy yet again, having set his heart on fire once more in the burning of Shireen, his own daughter. Ugh. So beautifully said. That's where it's all leading. And it haunts you just like Robert and Renly haunts Stannis' dreams. That's where we're going. That's what every step is down to. So to at last shift us to a foreshadowing and groundwork, <laughs> um, Davos will indeed lose his finger bones at the Blackwater. And so he will believe that he has lost his luck. It's a signif- uh, It signifies that he's going to have to make his own from now on. He's not going to be able just to rely on that one moment, his backstory with Stannis. And that's that's all part of his character development. As you were saying, George developed these characters so wonderfully, even though they are strictly speaking, secondary characters. Yeah, and it's really a a cool part of this backstory that you have this kind of... physical physical thing that represents something to Davos Seaworth and he loses it on the Blackwater. And yet Davos stays lucky, doesn't he? He stays lucky to have been kind of left ashore at uh, at, at Godric Burrell and having Godric Burrell actually like spare his life. He's lucky that Wyman Manerly needs Davos to be alive. And he's lucky that the phrase mm-hmm. buy into the lie that he gives them. His luck remains even as his token of that luck disappears. And I love that dynamic that George explores in the later books in A Song of Ice and That's Fire. a great point. The actual luck still persists. The sign of it that he, he came up with is gone. But the, the actual thing is, is still great. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's wonderful. It's awesome. So then Davos' statement about the Storm Lords' loyalty is being fickle. They were first for Robert, then Renly, now Stannis. And who is going to be the next? Hey, we're going to find that out very, uh, very much at the end of A Clash of Kings, as many of the surviving lords will then bend the knee to Joffrey in the throne room. Those, of course, who survived the Battle of the Blackwater. But in just a moon's turn, turn, maybe a few moon's turns at this point, their loyalty will be called into question once again when Renly Reborn in the form of Young Grift lands in the Stormlands. We already see from the Ariane sample chapters from the Winds of Winter that several of these Storm Lords are now flocking to Young Grift's golden banner. Yes, exactly. They're just going to keep flipping sides, these Turncloak Lords, just, just jumping from one team to the other. Davos, of course, has no idea that Young Grift is coming, but he just instinctively knows these people well enough. It's like, yeah, you're going to find someone new, aren't you? And they certainly do. They certainly do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So now, folks, taking us into our discussion portion of the episode. Oh. This is a question we've been building up to quite a while. I think it's a question that everyone asks themselves the first time they read these books and again the second time and again the third time because it's never perfectly made clear. And that question <laughs> is this. Did Stannis consciously give the order to kill Renly or did Melisandre do this on her own? So to give the case for him giving the order. I don't think that Stannis knew exactly what was going to happen at Storm's End. Melisandre did not go to him and say, okay, your grace, 
After we fuck, I'm going to give birth to a nightmarish shadow with your face, which will slit your brother's throat. Oh, and you'll be along for the ride, and we'll have nightmares about it afterward, and that'll reduce you to a living corpse with a heart of ash. Sound good? She didn't say that for the same reason she hasn't mentioned a human sacrifice to him yet, because Stannis would reject such tactics. For now, anyway. Having said that, I find it equally hard to believe that Stannis showed up at Storm's End, risking his army, his claim, and his sacred kingly body on nothing more than Melisandre, like, fluttering her fingers and vaguely telling him that Renly will die by pure happenstance <laughs> if he goes there. That would require Stannis to be either A, already enthralled by Melisandre's narrative, which he isn't, or B, the most gullible person alive, which he also isn't. <laughs> Let's look back at how Stannis describes Melisandre in Davos 1. I have ships, and I have her. The Red Woman. Half my knights are afraid even to say her name, did you know? If she can do nothing else, a sorceress who can inspire such dread in a grown man is not to be despised. A frightened man is a beaten man. And perhaps she can do more. I mean to find out. I think he found out. <laughs> Again, not specifically the Shadow Baby, but I think he went to Storm's End with the understanding that Melisandre somehow was going to take care of Renly for him. After all, he compares her to a hawk. A hunting bird who could do for him what Proudwing never could do for Robert in the form of Renly, bring him down to earth. Hunting birds don't just inform you of a fluffy little bunny that's going to die on its own and then you go pick it up. No, they go out and kill that fluffy little bunny and drop its fluffy little corpse in front of you. And now let's look back at the topic of how the topic of Renly's death is broached. Celeste does not explicitly say, we're going to kill Renly. <laughs> but when Crescent protests that Renly has only committed follies and does not deserve to die... Stannis shoots back that Renly has committed treason. And as he says in the Storm of Swords, death has always been the punishment for treason. His objections to this plan are logistical in nature, not moral. How do we get past his army, his lords, his rainbow guard? Well, Melisandre's powers are how. Crescent calls this fratricide. And neither Selyse nor Stannis object to this. Neither Selyse nor Stannis say, no, Crescent, we're not talking about us killing Renly. They don't say it. If Stannis genuinely thinks he does not bear responsibility for Renly's death... Why is he not eager to find and prosecute whoever does bear responsibility? If Stannis didn't make the call, whence his guilt? Why does he say that he knows now that he loved Renly? Well, doesn't that imply a previous state of mind in which he didn't know that? What decision was made in that state? Davos thinks to himself that something is wrong here, something is not adding up. What else is he referring to but the realization that Stannis' hands are not in fact clean? And finally, we have to consider Renly's death in context with Stannis' overall arc, which points like a flashing neon blood-red arrow, as we were saying, at the sacrifice of Shireen. I do not have much patience for theories that involve anyone but Stannis <laughs> making the call there. It was he who made the call ultimately regarding Edric Storm. There was never any indication Melisandre was just going to go ahead and burn him without Stannis' say-so. Threefold revelation, right? Renly's death is the first of three. While Melisandre always keeps secrets from Stannis, I do think she needs his buy-in on the big questions, because she needs him to be willing to set his heart on fire. How's she going to get him to sacrifice Shireen unless she, she knows he's been willing to do similar things? A step down to hell. What she says to him regarding Edric Storm, give me this boy and I will give you your kingdom. I don't think it's the first time she said it. I think mm. she was only so sure he'd be on board with killing a relative because he'd already done it once. And now over to you, sir. 
compelling arguments, I have to admit, before I get jump into my uh, part of the argument, because I'll be arguing for the case against Stannis giving the order, but I do think you make some excellent points, which I will touch on at the end of my argument. So I want to start my argument by saying that George R. Barton intentionally made this issue ambiguous, right? And it's open to debate. You can come out of Renly's death chapter and Stannis's reflection on the death here in Davos' second chapter in Clash, thinking that Stannis did or did not give the order. And you can come to that from an honest place. For purposes of this discussion, I'm going to take on the role of arguing for Stannis not giving the order. My own feelings are a bit more complex. I'll unpack that at the end. So as Stannis' defense attorney here, I guess, sorry, Sir Frank B., the King's Justice, you haven't taken the bar as of this recording. So sorry. <laughs> I'd start by looking at the whole mess of prophecy, Melisandre, and Stannis' relationship to it. Uh, you made the point, Emmett, that the Stannis has already stated the intended to find out all that Melisandre could do for him at the end of A Clash King's Davos 1. And Stannis will reveal that Melisandre saw Renly dead. But the impression we get, and I'm going to use those types of words a fair amount here, impression, sense, because this is sort of stuff we have to interpret from the text itself, is that Melisandre only revealed that Renly was fated to die and didn't tell Stannis what her and Stannis' role in Renly's death would be. And this is par for the course for what Melisandre sees in the flames, and I wonder whether Melisandre didn't fully know what she was perceiving in the flames when she was looking for Renly. We know from Melisandre's dance chapter that she sees skulls around Jon Snow. Did she maybe see skulls when she looked at the flames and asked for a glimpse of Lord Renly before they sailed from Dragonstone? We don't know, but it's possible that Melisandre didn't know anything beyond that Renly would die at Storm's End. As she tells Stannis and Storm, when the fires speak more plainly, so shall I. There is truth in the flames, but it is not always easy to see. Regardless, let's shift the discussion to how Melisandre communicates whatever it is she sees in the flames. In Storm, Stannis talks specifically about what Melisandre saw with regard to Renly's fate. She saw Renly's end in the flames, yes, but she had no more part in it than I did. The priestess was with me. Your Devon would tell you so. Ask him if you doubt me. She would have spared Renly if she could. It was Melisandre who urged me to meet with him and give him one last chance to amend his treason. Yes, yes, I know. No more part than I. We'll circle back to this at the end. My sense is that from this quote from A Storm of Swords is that Melisandre told Stannis and Dragonstone something like, yeah, Renly is going to die, but maybe the prophecy can be averted. Recall that Stannis later tells Davos in this chapter in Clash that Melisandre sometimes sees multiple versions of the future in the flames. Perhaps this was one of those multiple versions of the future. Still, was Melisandre being honest with Stannis? I don't think so. Let's circle back to Mel's chapter in A Dance with Dragons where we see her thoughts and her words and actions and what she perceives in the flames and how she communicates that to the people who are... A little skeptical of her. There, Devin Seaworth asks what Melisandre sees in the flames, and she thinks, skulls, a thousand skulls, and the bastard boy again, Jon Snow. Whenever she was asked what she saw in the flames, Melisandre would answer, much and more. But seeing was never as simple as those words suggested. It was an art, and like all arts, it demanded mastery, discipline, study, pain. That, too. Relore spoke to his chosen ones through blessed fire in the language of ash and cinder and twisting flame that only a god could grasp. So what I think Melisandre is communicating here, communicating here is that she sees stuff in the flames, but she doesn't just come out and just tell people what she sees most of the time. In short, she bullshits them when she just doesn't really want to reveal exactly what was what she saw. And that brings us to the idea of even showing up the storms and more importantly, treating with Renly at all. As Stannis tells Catelyn, his reason for coming to Storm's End in the first place was to take Renly's army from his brother in order to make a plausible attack on King's Landing. But it does seem strange to me that Stannis would parlay with Renly at all if he came to Storm's End simply to kill Renly. 
From that quote a moment ago, his intent was to give Renly one last chance to repent of his treason. Additionally, additionally, as we learn in this chapter, Melisandre told Stannis the alternative to not come to Storm's End. Melisandre saw another day in the flames as well. A morrow where Renly rode out from the south in his green armor to smash my host beneath the walls of King's Landing. Had I met my brother there, it might have been me who died with him. And kudos to Lord Travis, Master of Ships, for a uh, Twitter thread this morning, which I was able to read before we recorded this that reminded me of that quote. So thank you, Travis. And I can hear the argument. I can hear your counter argument already, those of you in the chat. It was image, image politics to conduct a parlay. That's what Stance was all about, right? Guys, come on. Stance is notoriously bad at image politics. There's no sense that we get from Clash or Storm that Stannis parlayed with Renly to seek the moral high ground. That's why Renly parlayed with Stannis. It's not the opposite way. No matter of the execution of that parlay itself, which again was very, very bad on Stannis' part, I think Stannis' intent was to genuinely come to the bargaining table in order to forestall Melisandre's prophecies. Either Renly will die or that Stannis will die. But when the parlay went to shit, surely then Stannis gave the order to, to for Melisandre to kill Renly, right? Mm, not so fast. As we talked about in part one of our analysis of Catelyn's third chapter in Clash of Kings, it very much looks like the Stannis was preparing for a traditional battle to defeat Renly's forces in the field. Why put in all that extra work for the army if the whole idea was to have Melisandre just kill Renly when he arrived at Storm's End? Moreover, why does Stannis then tell Davos this line? Devon tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh. My lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armored. I knew Renly would attack at break of day. Why give a shit about getting up and on a horse and ready for battle if Stannis had already consented to Melisandre killing Renly? Again, remember the other half of what Melisandre had told Stannis. Melisandre told me that if I went to Storm's End, I would win the best part of my brother's power. And she was right. There's a fair amount of ambiguity in what, quote, winning the best part would mean. But given the context of Stannis preparing for a battle, telling Davos that he should have been up on his horse for battle, and that Stannis was planning for the lesser part of Renly's army would have likely perished in the battle that Stannis was preparing for, I think it might be evidence that Stannis did not necessarily give the order. And that's where I want to close out my defense attorney portion of my argument. I fully believe that Stannis was willing to kill Renly. I fully believe that he was angry enough to do it at the end of the parlay. Stannis is fucking pissed at that point. But I don't see evidence that he did give the order given all of the context. Members of the jury, I urge you to vote not guilty in the case of Stannis Baratheon giving the order to kill Renly, his brother. Now, taking off my defense attorney hat, putting on my own hat, and playing a defense story is a lot of fun, so I really appreciate <laughs> the opportunity to do that. My personal take. I, I think, Emmett, you're making a lot of excellent points about why Stance would feel guilty, why he would say Relore willed Renly and dead. So who did the deed doesn't matter and about who was at fault. But then you have, And then you also have Stance's statement. I've edited out the line about how he should have been a horse and getting ready for battle just to make the context a little more clear. I dream of it sometimes, of Renly's dying, a green tent, candles, a woman screaming, and blood. Stance looked down at his hands. I was still abed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. Devon says I thrashed and cried out. But what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died. And when I woke, my hands were clean. So my read is that Stannis recognizes by the time he is talking with Davos in this part of the chapter that he bears culpability in Renly's justifiable killing or murder, depending on your perspective. He was in the tent when it happened, or some part of him was. He was angry enough to want Renly dead. And I have to imagine that was what Melisandre used to ensorcel the shadow baby that killed Renly and will kill Courtney at the end of this chapter. Again, I probably think that any order that Stannis gave to Melisandre 
was likely unspoken, but there's no textual evidence for or really even against that argument. So Stannis' statement in the Storm of Swords that she had no part in it than I did, the priestess was with me, reads as self-deception the best light, a lie in the worst. We report in the Nightcast podcast, you decide. <laughs> That's our slogan, of course. That's perfect. You make excellent points. There's so much ambiguity built around this. George is clearly doing that on purpose. And Stannis, you know, has has this this military setup that does not jive with just him purely sending Melisandre in. I agree. I think in part that's just for the reader. Like if Stannis shows up without his army, the reader goes, wait, what? What's going on? Like Stannis has to have a plausible thing there just for George to keep the wool over our eyes. I think also Stannis as a pragmatic man, even if he was going in on Melisandre killing Renly, wants to have a backup. Like in case she fails. Uh, the other possibility is maybe he thought Melisandre would be involved in the battle somehow and that, that would be how Renly would die. I think that, yeah, the fact that, you know, he talks about I should have been armed and ar- armed and horse, you know, indicates he was he was getting in the mindset for a battle. That makes total sense to me. I just, I have difficulty imagining, he says at the end of Davos 1 all, that all, all he knows she can do is make people afraid. I find it really hard to believe he, he ro- rolled the dice on that. Like, uh, he, Melisandre looked into the fire and said, I see when they did if you go there. And Sanis just went, yep. I just, that that moment makes no sense to me, and maybe it has something to do with the fact that Melisandre slept with him. I think that could definitely be a huge part of it. Yeah, um, but fucking does kind of cloud the brain. Yeah. Certainly, but but I, I feel like Stannis would need something more for this first killing. By the time you get the Storm of Swords in with dragons, yeah, he he kick, takes Melisandre's word in a lot of things, but he's risking everything here at Storm's End, and it, it it seems like it's a cart before the horse situation for me. It's like I don't understand how he trusts Melisandre. Up until this point, I get now. I get why he trusts her now because she's demonstrated her power. <laughs> but I feel like she would have had to, to to do something again. I don't. She explain the whole thing. Sure. And maybe, as you say, maybe it wasn't even articulated. Like if people have said, maybe Tywin didn't give the order to Gregor to kill Elia Martell because he didn't have to. He knew what would happen. Or Pycelle says, you know, I knew in Cersei's eyes she wanted me to kill John Aaron. Maybe that's what happened with Stannis and Melisandre. I could see that. But I think. I think what we're getting at is is that George has clearly written it this way to to produce <laughs> such an argument, and so that it's oh, it's yeah. impossible for one side to prove the other completely right about this. I think emotionally, the takeaway is is clear that Stannis feels guilty and Stannis mm-hmm. feels responsible, and I think that that's important because even if he didn't give the order at any level, Renly's only dead because Stannis came here, knowing that Renly would die. So he just feels like, oh, I I did this at some some capacity, I did this, and it's just a debate of to what extent. And and I think the emotional part is like the core part of why of of why this part of the the chapter we why we ended up closing out this part of our analysis of the chapter is that it does speak to that emotion the emotion that Stannis is feeling, and that sense of guilt that he feels about Renly's death, is emotionally true to him participating in Renly's death because as he says he was right there when it happened his but his hands were clean when he woke up. I, there's there's an argument I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make when we get to a storm of swords where Davos hears about how Melisandre and, and Selyse had executed a bunch of people and burned them, where I'm going to where people have argued that Stannis is not at fault for that because he was on the Blackwater, but the fact that Stannis doesn't go back and then punish Melisandre and Selyse for those actions makes him culpable in those acts themselves. So he they were acting in the king's name and the king doesn't come back and say no you should not have done that you are banished or you are whatever it is whatever crime whatever punishment should have fit the crime in that case. I think here it's a bit more ambiguous. I think it is less ambiguous when we get to Sir Courtney Penrose's death by at the end of this chapter and what Melisandre and Stannis have discussed at that point. I think we're going to have, I I think I'm going to come down very strongly in the fact that Melisandre and Stannis definitely did have some sort of consultation, like beyond simply like some sort of ambiguity of 
Melisandre saying, I'll take care of Renly for you. Okay, go ahead, take care of Renly without actually like giving any context about what taking care of Renly would actually mean. So again, my my, my feelings are, are conflicted about it. I think that George wants us to feel conflicted about it. And damn you, George, we're all conflicted now. But I think <laughs> I, something right. I appreciate with you, sir, is, is that we're able to have these discussions because I think... I think online, I think a lot of people tend to just kind of do the same thing which is happening in this chapter. They take extreme positions either on one end of the spectrum or on the other end of the spectrum without actually like talking about the commonalities and what the cases for the other side might be. And I appreciate the opportunity that we can have a civil, interesting discussion about this this very ambiguous, very controversial scene in A Clash of Kings that has spawned a lot of fan debate. And I appreciate the ability to do this with you in a way that's uh, that's fun entertaining and also a, a front of like 230 odd people who are watching us which i think is the most amount of people we ever had watching us on these live casts so yeah it's awesome absolutely i love doing this with you so this was a wonderful episode and thank you so much to everyone who's uh, watching on the live cast and, and listening in the, on the general release thank you so much mm -hmm. and i think that about wraps up for this analysis on the clash kings davos 2 part 2 again we have more davos coming up uh, we were just talking right before we came on air and that well, I think this is actually going to be a, a, a four-part episode on A Clash Kings Davos 2. We have another section of this conversation between Stannis and Davos that we're going to address next week. And the week after that, we will talk about the actual Shadow Baby and the Melisandre Davos conversation, which is equally fascinating. It's wonderful. And this Davos chapter deserves all of our attention, even in an almost line-by-line -line read that we've done today. So... Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for all of you for watching. We really, really appreciate it. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-O-F. There's an A-S-O-I-A-F there. I got it that time. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at poorquentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics Advice and .wordpress.com. We want to thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Nerful Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, John Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, and our newest High Lord, Sir Keith of House Corbright, Wielder of Lady Forlorn. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to Sir Keith of House Corbright. Absolutely. Thank you so much to all the High Lords and Ladies, and thank you so much for your all, all our patience for our support, and welcome to Sir Keith of House Corbright. Have enjoyed your presence on the Not A Cast Slack. It's been a lot of fun, so thank you for your support. So join us next week for part three of four of A Clash Kings Davos 2, in which Stannis and Davos continue their conversation in, their, in Stannis's ordinary-looking tent, which stands in stark contrast to Renly's ornate tent. Of course, the tent being the one that he was assassinated in. That's going to be great. Another another dense conversation. The Stannis and Davos conversation keeps on rolling. Pretty much because Stannis just, you know, has no one else to talk to. So he's just going to get it all out on Davos. That's the dynamic. <laughs> and I love it. 
it's absolutely the dynamic. It's going to be so much fun. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching us. If you guys are sticking around for a little bit, we will answer your questions and chat with you guys. We really appreciate all of your eyeballs on us tonight. We really, it's a lot of fun. Very gratifying. And we will see you guys next week.